I just want to welcome all of you guys to Lighthouse Coastal Community Church. And it is, it is really exciting to have you guys here. What I, one of the things I love about the influencers, one of the reasons why I get so excited to do so many things and just join in with you guys is that it is such a perfect body, or such a perfect picture of Christ's prayer uh, you know, that we see in John 15, John 16, where he says, I desire unity of the body. I desire that they would be one. And as we are one, we, we get to be a, an example to those around us. And what I love about influencers is it reminds us that there aren't a whole bunch of competing churches competing for people to call it home. There's only one church with one head. And I will be the first to say it is so easy to get focused on doing church, playing at church, especially when you're in full-time ministry. It is so easy to play at church and completely lose sight of, lose connection with the head, with our shepherd. And so as Bill Cobble was telling me a little bit about the last time that we've had Rhonda out in the last 21 days of consecration, um, I wasn't thinking to myself, man, I really want that for my church. I thought to myself, man, I really need that for me because I hunger and thirst for intimacy. And I'll be the first to say, I don't feel all that close. I need a new infilling. And one of the things, I got a chance to sit down with Rhonda a little bit last night and hear her heart. And if there's one thing, I could could give her whole like pedigree. Here's her resume. I'm not going to do that. I'll let her share what she wants of her story. The one thing I can say for her is that she's real. She has seen God work in miraculous ways, things that would absolutely blow our socks off. She spent time in Argentina, right? It was Argentina. Um, Saw God do unbelievable things there. She's been in full-time ministry, and she knows what it feels like to feel dry as she's trying to pour out into other people. She gets this. And for those of us who kind of feel like we've been playing at church, for those of us who feel disconnected, she is speaking as somebody who has been there. And at times is still there. And so I will be the first to say, I'm here not to be the host. I'm here because I need this for me. And I'm excited for God to move. And so I just want to invite Rhonda up and I'd like to pray for her and then give her the rest of the day um, just to help us to begin to cull away the junk that can get in the way and distract us. So if you would, bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for bringing Rhonda here. I thank you for the ways that you've used the difficult, painful seasons of her life, the dry seasons, those desert times, and you've redeemed them. You are a God who redeems even our greatest brokenness. And you turn it into something beautiful. And I thank you that you have prepared Rhonda to be an ambassador of hope, an ambassador of intimacy with the Father. And God, I pray that you would show up. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way today. She is a human broken vessel. And yet you do your best work with broken vessels. So would you pour out yourself today in this place? Would you be glorified? Would you take the words that you're placing on her heart and would you prepare the soil of our hearts to receive it? Would you continue to water the seeds of understanding the seeds of intimacy and relationship. Because at the end of the day, information, we've got plenty of information about you. We need more of you. So would you just come crashing into our world and radically change 
the way that we're approaching our lives with you, not for you, not simply for you, with you. So we entrust today to you. Have your way, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Yeah, this is her book she wrote. There's a whole bunch of them back there, but I was going to talk about it, but forget it. <laughs> Great promo, Eric. Good morning. It's really good to be here. I've been really excited to come back. Um, there's just such a sense of what God's doing in Orange County. He's stirring some things. He's, he really is sowing some fresh seed in good soil. And I, I, too, am just super impressed with the influencers. I love what you guys are doing. I love who you are. I love your 20-year history, just seeking God, serving God. Um, Sometimes you wait a long time for a harvest, you know, but it really feels like this is a season of harvesting what you've been sowing and laboring for. So I'm very excited about that. And just bless you for coming out on a Saturday, you know. I, I think it's going to be a, hopefully an encouraging day. I'm going to give you a little bit of the menu before we start on the first session. Um, this morning in the first session, I'm going to speak about transformation and what it is and how you get it. And then we're going to take a short break. Uh, the second session, I'm going to talk about the transforming nature of God's kingdom. And that's my favorite, one of, one of my favorite subjects. After lunch, we're going to look at the status quo. So we're going to look at the kingdom of God, and then we're going to look at where we are. And hopefully by the end of that session, we're all going to want to get out of the status quo and do whatever it takes to walk into and usher in the measure of the kingdom that we can have on this side of, e of the Lord's return. Amen? So my, my hope is to provoke you to more thirst and more hunger for God, but also to give you a practical way forward. So the last session today, we're going to talk about the next time of consecration, the face-to-face -face that's coming up at the end of the month. And the reason we're doing the seminar is you can't just keep going through the 21 days. We had a community, I don't know, We've done this in about 40 communities so far, but I think this was somewhere up in Michigan. But there was a community, about 10 churches, and they would just keep going through the face-to-face -face process because they had such a sense of the presence of the Lord when they would do it. But I finally said, you guys, you can't just keep going through the 21 days. So one of the reasons we're doing the seminar is to put the 21 days consecration into a broader context. Right, because a time of con we shouldn't have to keep consecrating ourselves. Amen. Um, we need to do that, and we do periodically need to do that. But my point is, there's more than that, and so I'm hoping to share a little bit of the broader picture with you, and maybe suggest some of the things that might be on God's heart for your community as well, because this isn't just about us drawing near to the Lord. It's also about the Lord drawing near to your community with His presence and his glory and his kingdom. So we're going to end the day looking at the face-to-face -face process and talk about that in some practical terms as well. The first thing I want to do is, is share a little bit of my story with you in, in uh, two different specific things. And I call it the journey to more. I've had two very, for me, very dramatic times in my life where God challenged the status quo of my life just messed me up and put a hunger in my heart for more than I currently had. How many of you have a real um, suspicion that there's more 
than you currently have, right? So we all, we all have this nagging sense this can't be all there is. But we're not quite sure how to get anything else or anything more from the Lord, right? I, I think the, the American church is kind of really stuck in that place. I think there's a lot of people that actually do want more, but they're in captivity to a system and a culture they have no idea how to get out of. And the Lord wants to show us how to get out. My first encounter, I was um, involved in ministry and uh, in a good church. Everything was great. My life was going well. I had, you know, everything I wanted. And then the Lord challenged me to move to Argentina for a year. And I hadn't, you know, known the Lord that long, so I had no heart for missions. I had no desire to sacrifice or serve and do anything like that. You know, it was so foreign to me. But he was in, in pretty intentional about it. So I, I said, okay, and I, I moved to Argentina for a year. I had no idea what was going on in Argentina. Um, I'd never heard about it. I'd never heard about revival of any kind anywhere in my church experience. But I landed in the middle of a raging revival fire. And I don't know if you're familiar what, with what's gone on in the Argentine revival, but it's one of the most profound revivals um, in our century. And it shocked the good Minnesota girl out of me. <laughs> um, I was attending a real charismatic church, I thought. I was attending a church where we, we loved the Lord, we loved his word. I was real involved in ministry. And yet when I got to Argentina, I experienced, I encountered the presence of the Lord in a way I had never, ever encountered before. Now, I'd read about it. And what's funny is when I gave my heart to Jesus, I, I made a deal with him. I thought I was making a deal. It really wasn't a deal. But I told the Lord, because I grew up in church, you know, I grew up. I knew all the Bible stories. I knew God was real. I just didn't want a Lord. That bothered me. I didn't want somebody telling me what I should do, you know. I wanted to go to heaven. I wasn't, you know, stupid. But I didn't want somebody, I didn't want a Lord in my life. I had too many important things to do. So when I went back to church, I was probably 22 years old, I told the Lord, okay, if you're real, I'll serve you. But I don't want some religious tradition and routine. I've had that all my life. It's not interesting to me at all. So I did get saved that morning, and I met Jesus in a real way, and I'm, I was very happy to make him the Lord of my life. But I didn't realize how he was going to answer that prayer. See, I didn't want, when I gave my heart to the Lord, I wanted something real, and I wanted something that was tangible, you know, something authentic, something I had actually read about in the Bible. And frankly, I just hadn't seen much of that in my church experience. Well, when I got to Argentina, I, I saw everything I can think of. I didn't see anybody raised from the dead. That's about all I didn't see. But I was baptized by the fire of revival at an early, uh, early age, about my early 20s. And it, it shocked me. I mean, I, my head was a mess. My heart was a mess. I didn't know what was true, what was not true. I was just shocked by the whole thing. I actually experienced a, uh, the manifest presence of God, which is very different than the indwelling, abiding presence of God. And for those of you that have read my book, um, I talk about that. I explain that. You know, we can have an indwelling presence of the Lord, but that's very different than the external manifestation of his glory and his manifest presence. 
In other words, we would have, the Lord would come into our Bible school chapels, and it would, you could feel him come in like a rushing wind, like rolls of waves would come over our students. And you would be so, so affected by his presence, sometimes it would just crush you to the ground. You couldn't stand up under the weight of it. I mean, I was in crusades with 30,000 people, and thousands of people would start manifesting demonic stuff, and I'd never met a demon, okay? I went to a little church in Minnesota. We didn't have demons. I was in a whole different world. And it was new, but I, I can't tell you how exhilarated I was to encounter the presence of God like that. Not just the nice, tame God that I, had, I could manage in my heart, where it was safe, you know what I mean? I could have as much of him as I wanted. When you would go to revival services in Argentina, it was scary. I mean, it, was, it really was like a freight train coming through into a room. We had a, a meeting once in a room about this size in a big hotel downtown Buenos Aires, 400 delegates and a bunch of Argentine leaders, evangelists. And I don't know how to even describe what happened that day. Just... I remember Japanese delegates rolling back and forth in the joy of the Lord. There were people under tables. There were demons being cast out. And I was just shaking. Like, if that presence, here was what I thought, if that presence on that side of the room gets any closer to me, I'm going to, it's going to kill me. Now, it was an instinct because I knew my flesh, my frame was so frail compared to that power. Now, that's something I had never experienced before in my life. The presence of God was so available in Argentina because of the revival that was going on. So every service, services were about four or five hours long. When the Lord was done, we went home. But we didn't go home until the Lord was done doing everything he wanted to do. And in every service, the demonized were set free, the lost were saved, and the sick were healed. I mean, that was normal Christianity for us. Well, after I'd been there for a year, it was normal for me. What the Lord did is he changed my normal from a barrenness and lack of his presence and evidence of him being in our midst to a great expectation. This is what it ought to be like when we meet together with Jesus. Things should change. Things should happen. We shouldn't leave the same way we came in the room. But then I went home. I went back to my home church that I loved and was a, a part of, uh, involved in ministry there. But it was different now because I was expecting and longing for something now that I didn't even know I wanted before I moved to Argentina. See, until we taste something more, we're not hungry for anything more. You can be satisfied with your status quo until the day you eat something different. You taste something else. And all of a sudden, it opens up a whole realm of possibility. Oh, my goodness, we can have that on a Sunday morning? We can be in the presence of God like that? Not just like we've always known? So I got really depressed. I got really mad at God. I'm like, why did you let me taste all of that and send me back to this barren wilderness? And I didn't understand, I, I didn't know how to ask my pastor, you know, Pastor, um, why isn't Jesus here in our services like he was in Argentina? 
You know, Pastor, why, why don't the sick ever get healed here? Why do those people that are obviously struggling with some severe, you know, oppression, why aren't they ever set free? Why aren't the sick ever healed? You know, I, I didn't know how to ask those questions. I was very confused. And I had people telling me, honey, you'll get over it. Just give it some time. You're just, you're just in culture shock, and after a couple of weeks, it'll wear off, and you'll be back to normal. And I'd be like, I don't want to be back to normal. I don't ever want to be back to normal. If normal means an absence of his presence and his power in the church, what are you saying? So for two years, I was struggling and then, you know, the American argument is, well, you know, God always, always does those, those kinds of things in places like that in the third world because, after all, they need him more than we do. You've heard that. Come on. That's why there's miracles in India and Africa. We've all heard those things. I didn't know. I had no theological understanding for it, but I know what happened in my heart, and it set me on a journey longing for that more than anything in my life and eventually that led me to um, pack up my little Volkswagen and move to San Jose California and get involved in a ministry that I knew nothing about all I knew is the guy was from Argentina and I could go back and taste revival so I sold everything I owned I packed up my car and I drove to San Jose and I got involved in revival ministry in Argentina and that to me was the dream of my heart but a couple of years later, I had my second uh, uh, challenge for more in my life. And that's when I was invited, a guy named George Otis Jr. invited our office, our, our, our team, along with some other leaders, to come visit a community he said had been transformed. Now, none of us had ever heard that language before. This was in 1998. Nobody had ever heard that. I mean, I'd never heard it. We didn't know what, what he meant by it, but he was claiming that all the jails had been closed due to a lack of crime. I'm like, well, that sounds like the Welsh revival. Wow. He was claiming that 92% of the people in the community had been saved. I'm thinking, are you kidding? You know? In fact, as our leader thought, he's exaggerating. He's got to be exaggerating. And I thought, well, even if he is, even if he's only halfway right, no, none of us have ever seen a community like that before. So I jump on an airplane. I go to Guatemala City. And I visit a community that had been supernaturally transformed by the power of God. Now, this was new. In my revival encounter with the Lord, my, what the Lord was doing in my heart was proving to me his, who he is and how available his presence is. But it was always in the context of revival meetings. In other words, they were conferences or stadium events or, you know, something that was not normal during your, your uh, course of your, your week. So we always had to come home. So we'd go to Argentina. We'd have these amazing 10 days in the power of God and all these, all these crazy things would happen. And, I mean, crazy things like the whole hotel staff where we stayed would get saved and the manager would become a pastor and plant a church in the hotel i mean everybody in the taxi cabs and the restaurants were getting saved and i mean it was just crazy what was going on and i loved it i mean i loved it but i always had to go home 
I couldn't live in the revival meetings. And that was hard. It was hard for everybody. And in the 90s, I don't know if any of you did this, but we were all flocking to meetings, right? Going to conferences, just trying to get a fix, just trying to find God's presence. How many of you did that? When here or there, where's God? Where's God? You know. But this was different. When I visited the community of Almalonga, Guatemala, I, I came into the community and immediately in my spirit I realized, oh, this is what God has in mind. He doesn't have in mind that we just keep revisiting and keep repeating our revival conferences. He doesn't want to just visit us. He actually wants to dwell among us. He wants to not just touch down and stir things up and give us a great 10 days. Oh, wasn't that glorious? No, he wants to actually dwell among his people and live with us in a tangible way that will change the communities where we live. And my spirit immediately went, oh, this is what God has in mind. He doesn't want it to end either. He doesn't want us to go home to barrenness and the wilderness. He wants us to host his presence in a way where we can enjoy his fellowship, his intimacy, his presence, his power, his, you know, everything he wants to do where we live. So when we first got into the community, we drove through the streets. Before we even got into the community, you could feel a change in the atmosphere over the, over the town. And what I mean is, Guatemala um, is 40, 40 mountains or something like that, 42 mountains, volcanic mountains. So it was a long journey to get there. And we drove through a number of small uh, communities, like Almalonga. And the one we'd just come through, we'd spent the night in the night before. It was, uh, yeah, you don't care about the name of it. Um, and it was full of brawling and drinking. And the Catholic Church had this big shrine processional down the streets. It was really creepy. They were worshiping all this weird stuff. The partying went on all night. They were, there were fights outside our hotel. There were drunk people in the streets and stray dogs. And everybody was oppressed. I mean, it was just dark. And then we left this community, and we drove 20 minutes into Amalonga, and all of a sudden, it was like somebody just turned the lights on. And we started seeing the people with the glory of the Lord on their faces. And they were walking together as families. And then I started looking at all the buildings, the businesses, and the gas station, and the bakery, and they had all been named after the names of the Lord. Jehovah Jireh Bakery, Jehovah Nisi Toyota, Jehovah Rapha, you know, whatever. I'm like, oh my goodness. And then there was a banner hanging over the whole town, this giant banner. It said, Jesus is Lord of Almalonga. Now, I thought to myself, we do that all the time. We say that all the time, right? Oh, Jesus, we declare you are Lord. We say those things. But it's not true yet not true he's not really the lord of your community right now or mine but in Almalonga, the people had really made him the lord of their community it wasn't just something they were hoping would happen it was something that had already occurred and so the banner wasn't prophetically announcing what was going to happen i mean there's nothing wrong with praying that but this was a declaration of what he had already done. 
he actually was the Lord over this entire community, 14,000 people. He had transformed every sphere of society, even the agriculture. If you've seen the video, the carrots were giant. I mean, the productivity of the land was healed and increased, and it, it just blows your mind. I've been there a number of times, taken a lot of leaders, um, because you can talk and talk about this, but boy, you go visit one of these communities and you don't have to explain very much. You can just feel it. So that time, what that did for me was when I came home from that first trip to Almalonga, I realized, oh my goodness, if God is willing to bring this level of redemption to a community, what about mine? What about our nation? Why don't we see this kind of transformation in the United States? We all want it. We all want revival to come. And so that set my heart on a, a wanting more, not just a revival, but of a, a way of sustaining the presence of God at a community level. Because then I realized revival is just the beginning. God wants to revive his church, but revival is not for your city. Revival is for the people of God. When the people of God are revived and God is dwelling in the midst of his church, the transformation is what occurs in the community. Does that make sense? So when there's a, a spiritual awakening of a community, God first revives his people. But then he, it's not about the church. It's not about getting everybody in your community inside the walls of a building. It's about reviving the church until Jesus is really Lord, and then we carry that out like, like that fountain of living water, you know, and we just start bringing it out and it starts touching and bringing life to our city government, our, you know, our school boards, our police department, and that's what had happened in Almalonga. So now I tasted something even more than revival. I thought if it's possible there, you know, why won't he do it here? Well, George released that video in 1999. He did a documentary on Almalonga. Hopefully you've seen that. If not, you can get copies of it. So in 1999, he released a documentary on Almalonga, Guatemala. And that shocked the church world. This was the first time that we really understood that he wanted to do more than revive the church. And it provoked a lot of um, discussion, a lot of hunger. In fact, is George, George got calls from a thousand communities in our nation following the release of that documentary. Everybody wanted to know what happened, how do we get that, how do we get God to come here to our town. Now, since that time, this was 1999, in the first decade of the 21st century, which is just... Uh, all of that is, God is such a God of precise timing and seasons. But when we entered into the 21st century, Alma Lunga was like the first fruits of what God started doing all over the world. In 1999, there were eight communities that God had transformed supernaturally, which I'll talk about more in a moment. By the end of the first decade of the 21st century, there are at least 1,000 communities that have now been transformed in 45 nations. And it's, that's such an old number, but that's just the one I know I can commit to. Um, nobody even knows anymore. George isn't even tracking it. I don't think anybody's even tracking it. It's accelerating so quickly. The last I heard from 
the leaders in Papua New Guinea, this was several years ago, they were training uh, leaders in a thousand villages in Papua New Guinea alone to take them through the transforming process. The Canadian Arctic is filled, I mean, places all over Central and South America and Th Thailand, you know, just in the east and the South Pacific. I mean, God is literally beginning to fulfill his word in Habakkuk 2.14 that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to be poured out and cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. We're living in that day. So Almalunga wasn't, an, wasn't just something mysterious that happened, like a weird scientific experiment, you know, that we just look at, wow, wasn't that interesting what God did in 1999 in Almalunga? No, he, he's not only doing it there, he has been accelerating and spreading this now all over the world. Now that's good news, because if this isn't just some strange occurrence, and if he's spreading it and it's accelerating through the nations like that, then there's a good chance that God wants to do something in our community too, right? But in the United States in the last 10 years, we've had a real struggle. Um, and I won't get into that much right now, but um, we've had a real struggle in the United States and the Western world because we, we like the idea of transformation. We love the vision of it. We love the stories. We love the revelation. We love, you know, everything we see God doing. But we really don't like the process, which I'll get to in a little while. So for the most part, the, the Western world, I, I only know of one transformed community anywhere in the Western world. Only one. So while the, in the same 10-year period of time, when the nations got over probably at least a thousand or more communities transformed, the Western world has seen one transformation. So that gives us an idea of the challenge we're facing in the Western world and in our nation. Um, but the Lord's not intimidated by that. He has a plan. But he's not going to ever do it our way. And we're going to talk about that later. Leaders all over our country insist that God is going to bring them revival just the way they want it just when they want it, and they're not going to have to humble themselves or repent for anything, you know, and they're, they're just, just this obstinate, stiff-neckedness in the church. We'll get back to that. Now, what is the point of accelerating the transformation of communities and the nations? It's all about the glory of the Lord covering the earth. The, the real transformation movement when communities are supernaturally changed by his presence and power is something that glorifies the Lord. There is no ministry, no humans leading this process. There are people facilitating it. Our ministry is one of those. But there's nobody in charge. Um, I was on an airplane once. I don't know where I was going, but I was sitting next to this uh, youth pastor and he had a binder of notes, and he was going to some conference, and um, I don't know what, we started chatting a little bit, and he told me what he did, and he was going to go, he was part of a large denomination, and he was doing some big conference for training youth leaders. So he asked me what I did. It's always hard to explain what I do, and so I said, well, but he was a believer. I said, well, have you heard of the transformation yeah, documentaries or the transformation movement? No, you know, so I start sharing with him what God's doing and, you know, what it's like to be in a place like that and, you know, that my heart is to help this happen in the Western world as well. And we, I talked for a while. He said, to, he looked at me, he said, who is in charge of that? 
He said, I've never heard of that. Who, who's in charge of that? I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, somebody's got to be in charge. Who's leading this ministry? I mean, he was animated. His arms were going, you know. And I said, well, God is. I mean, he's like, he, I mean, that was like, you know, like, no, really. You know, you, who's, what organization is doing all that? And who's, who's leading? And I kept saying, no, there's nobody leading. It's these people in Papua New Guinea don't know the, the guys in the Arctic or in Thailand. It, it's a, it's a, I, finally I thought, do I say that? I said, it's a, just a move of God. Have you ever heard of one of those? It's a move of God. Boy, he just, the conversation ended right there. It, 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 it came in, it hit a wall of his understanding and bounced right off. Um, so my point is, there isn't anybody at the helm directing the ship except for the Lord. And that's personally why I like it and why I trust it, that it's about his glory um, increasing. So as the Holy Spirit is increasing his activity on the earth, which he's doing right now, we're not meant to be spectators on the sidelines. We are meant to be full participants with the Lord in what he's doing in the earth today. It's not a right understanding of our Bible to believe that history just winds up in devastation and destruction and hopelessness with a weak, beat-up church without any power. You know, I mean, that's fatalism. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that we are going to be a bride that's been prepared in partnership with his spirit and actively engaged in what God is doing in the nations at the end of the age. So part of the, the transformation we see is a call to partnering with God in the redemption of all things. We are not meant to just go through the routine religious experience and live as captives in our culture and not participate in the fulfillment of everything that God promises. He invites us to partner with him. And I, to me, that's the greatest adventure and the most exciting thing I can imagine. Let's look at what transforming revival is. I'm going to define it for you, and then we'll talk about what that means. Trans- transformation or a transforming revival is a corporate encounter with a supernatural God that is measurable and observable by everybody that lives in the geographic location. I'm just going to break that down. Transformation is a corporate, it's not a single congregation. No one congregation or ministry will ever get transformation for a whole community. It's a corporate, not plan or activity, because we've got lots of those. We've got lots of cities, and I was, I've been involved in lots of that, lots of citywide efforts. You know, we rent the stadium, we do the thing, we put on the crusade or whatever we do, and that's fabulous. But this is not a corporate, uh, you know, a corporate activity. This is a corporate encounter with a supernatural God. So we're not talking about some um, democratic process where we just network with a bunch of uh, communities or a bunch of congregations and we figure out something to do and, okay, you do the worship, we'll take care of the food, you guys find the, the preacher and we'll just put on this big thing for our city. We've done lots and lots of that in the United States. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. But it is not, that's not how you ever get revival. 
Here's something interesting about American mindset. Americans have looked at the transformation documentaries. There's about eight of them now. We look at the documentaries and we see the stadium events, like in Cali, Colombia. They pray. There's about 20 to 30,000 people that pray in the stadium um, every month. It's been going on for about 10 years. And they pray in that stadium. They have an all-night prayer vigil every month for the city. Americans look at that documentary and they think that's what we have to do. We've got to get the right venue, the right worship team, a really anointed preacher, get everybody in that room, and then presto changeo, he's going to have to come down from heaven and do something. If we get it just right, and we work and we work and we give it all of our money, and at the end of the day, less than 1% of people that come to the Lord through those events are ever discipled or ever get into the church. It's not, a, it's not the most fruitful thing we can do, and it will never produce revival or transformation. So the American church looks at the crowds, and that's where we want to start. That's not where they started in Cali, Colombia. They started on their faces in deep repentance, reconciliation. One of the leaders was murdered, you know. I mean, it just drew them together, and they, I mean, it, it was a whole process the stadium event was just the fruit of they just had to have a venue for a, that larger prayer meeting is all that was about. So when we look at the corporate encounter with a supernatural God, we're not talking about doing things together. You do do things together, but the purpose of it isn't the activity. It's to gather the people for the corporate encounter. And here's just a side note. We won't get into this much today, but... You know, we're the family of God, right? As Eric was mentioning, when God looks at a community, he's not looking at one church or one ministry or one group of people. When God looks at a community, he sees everybody that has become part of his family, been adopted into his family. And you know what? He wants to meet with us as a family. Some of the most precious meetings you'll ever have is when you're joined together with other members of the body of Christ, not based on your doctrines and your theologies and how you do this and how you do that, but just gathered around the centrality of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to gather us. He wants to meet with us. He wants to encounter us together corporately. And when a community has that kind of encounter with the Lord, he will visit the community and bring change, measurable change. So it's a corporate encounter with a supernatural God, meaning he's the one doing all the exploits. It's a, and we're going to get more to that in a moment. But the encounter leads to measurable, observable change. Transformation is not theory. Transformation describes something that has already happened, something that's already occurred. So in the back of my um, book, Desperate for His Presence, there's a list of ten indicators of transformation. Just gleaned from all the communities that have gone through, They've, similar things will happen. And we've realized that you know, most of that list will determine whether you have transformation or not. In other words, you can't just claim you've had it, although people do. You know, oh yeah, our city's been transformed. Well, prove it. If you can't prove it, it hasn't happened. If your crime rate isn't down, 
if leaders aren't repenting publicly, if the newspapers aren't declaring the goodness of the Lord, you know, these things that are common in all the transformed communities, if you don't have any of that, don't call it transformation. There may be good things going on, but we want to keep a high definition of what transformation is, not, a, not an easy one, not a low one. We want to believe God to actually do those kinds of supernatural things in our community. So it's when his name and his kingdom starts invading a community and affecting society at every level. So again, transformation is not just about what happens in the church. It it refers to a process of change as a result of his presence. I'll get back to that in a moment. In other words, it's not something we can do by ourselves. It's when his presence comes, it also changes the spiritual climate, which is something you will feel. In fact, is when you go to a transformed village, I'll just describe one in a moment, that's the first thing you notice is actually the, the atmosphere. Every community has an atmosphere. And most of our communities, the atmosphere is not full of the presence and joy and righteousness and you know hope that comes along with the Lord and his kingdom. There's oppression, there's intimidation, or there's humanism, or there's pride. You know, you can sense those things in the atmosphere. So when the encounter happens and his presence comes, it will change the atmosphere of the community itself. Let me tell you a story of of Fiji. When I first visited Fiji, Fiji has had about 300 villages transformed in the last 10 years. I mean, just it's just phenomenal. And I've been there a number of times. I've been in a number of villages. And um, I'll just tell you the story of one. Um, the first transformed village I ever visited was called Nuku. And this is actually where the, the transformation of the nation started. Um, but then it went to the, um, the president. It went to their parliament. So it went from the top down. And then it also went from the bottom or the grassroots up. It's very interesting. So the nation was transformed at a national level. But so were a lot of villages at a grassroots level. So the first time I visited Nuku, um, I had gotten really sick the night before. For some weird reason, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I got tonsillitis. My throat got swollen. I got a really high fever. And I was so sick. And I'm in this little hotel in Suva, Fiji. and, And I wake up thinking, there is no way I can get on a bus and drive for four hours you know, I just, man, I don't know if I can do that, but it was, I, there was no way I was going to miss it. So I got on the bus, and we drove out to the village, and I was so sick, and we got off, and we had a hike about a mile, we had to cross a river. I mean, I felt like a real missionary, you know, and, uh, but I was really miserable, you know, and all of a sudden, we crossed the river, and the best way to describe it is I felt like I, it felt like I was leaving a, like a really smoke-filled room, like where I couldn't breathe very well. And all of a sudden, I just walked into, like, I was standing on the top of a mountain. Just I could just breathe this air. It was just different. And the whole climate changed. And I was instantly healed. And I realized I didn't know what was happening. And I started talking to the Lord. And you know how you just talk to the Lord, but you don't expect much to come back? You know, you just, you know what I mean? You just say things, and but he, I don't know if that happens to you. But what happened was I started w- kind of wondering. I wasn't praying. I was just like wondering to the Lord, 
what's happened? What happened to my sore throat and my fever? And, and all of a sudden, the Lord just started speaking back. I'm like, wow, I can just talk to you, and you're talking back. And all of a sudden, I realized the heavens were totally open. And then I realized I had stepped into a boundary where the kingdom of God had come. And the thing that was on my throat couldn't follow me in there. That's how I, dis- that's how I define it. Because I think what hit me was spiritual warfare, honestly. I really do. And if it was, it makes sense that it couldn't come with me into this place where God dwells. I was instantly healed. And we walked into the village, walked into this amazing, it was just, to me, like being in heaven. The joy, again, what you notice on the, Americans think they want to see the power and the miracles and stuff. That's not what's amazing about transformation. It's the glory on the faces of the families. It's the sweetness and the presence of the Lord in the atmosphere. It's the quietness. All of a sudden, your mind, see, see, until we taste it, we don't know what we're putting up with. In our culture, in our communities, our atmosphere is so polluted by demonic oppression, we're getting lied to all the time. There's arrows of lust hitting our minds. There's temptations. There's uh, temptations to be proud or to be ambitious or to be bitter or offended. We're in a wrestling match every minute of the day in our minds and our hearts. But when you go into a place that now the atmosphere has been secured and given over to the lordship of Jesus, the atmosphere is really different. Um, I realized in another village another village I was visiting, I was trying to pay attention to that because people always ask, what's it like to be in a transformed village, you know? And so I started paying more attention to the atmosphere. And one of the things I realized is when I'm in a transformed village, I'm a really nice person. I'm mature. I have the character of Jesus. I have patience. I don't get easily offended. And I started thinking... Wow, I thought the impatient, easily offended, grumpy if you don't have coffee early in the morning kind of person, I thought that was me. It was all me. You know what? It isn't all me. It's also the influence of my culture and the atmosphere where I live that is incessantly just pummeling us all day long because of the the pollution, the spiritual pollution in the atmosphere. the atmosphere becomes so clear in a transformed village. It's amazing. You can just think. You can commune with the Lord. Your spiritual maturity is actually there. I'm like, wow. It was so encouraging to me. It really was. I'm like, wow. Because I realized I am growing in, in the Lord, but some of this is coming from outside. It's not all coming from the inside of me. That was encouraging to me. That's why there's so much joy and so much peace. That's why they have unity and they can all get along because they are now submitted to the lordship of the perfect man who Jesus is. And he's releasing, isn't there fruit of the spirit? Right? Isn't there, aren't there things that accompany the presence of God? What's it like to live in that? Not just on a Sunday morning where we put on our church faces and we... Try, you know, we try to be mature, 
but on Monday morning when we're in the office, you know, what happens then? We're inundated with the culture and the pressures of our lives. And it's, it's hard. It's hard living in an oppressive climate. One of the things, one of the first things that happens in transformation is the climate will change. And to me, that's the most wonderful part of transformation. So that's what transformation is. Let's talk about how it occurs. How do you get it? Here's something interesting. Transformation doesn't just erupt spontaneously like some local revivals do. We have this idea that if we just wait and pray, he's going to just do it, you know, and then we're going to be in it. And that sometimes happens with uh, short-term revivals, local revivals that last a couple of months or years. There's just spontaneous eruptions. That's not how transformation happens. And this is really important, you guys, because transformation follows an intentional process by desperate believers. It's an intentional process, which means if you want transformation, you can have it. But if you don't prepare for it, you'll never have it. This is where God wants to partner with us to prepare the way of the Lord into our communities. It occurs as a result of profound obedience to remove every obstacle. You know Isaiah 62.10 it says, raise up a banner. It says, remove the stones. We want to remove the stones. Raise up, raise up, build up the highway and remove the stones. If we want transformation, we have to prepare the way of the Lord into our communities. But he doesn't come anywhere and for any reason. There are obstacles on the road. There are things that are so offensive to his holy presence See, what we want is we want God to just come and ignore the big boulders. Oh, Lord, if you will just, would you just ignore immorality? Would you ignore the the violence and corruption? Would you ignore all our ambition? We just want you, God. We just want you to just come and break in. And I mean, it's just absolute schizophrenia, you know. We want God to do something he will never, ever do. We're in a bit of a conflict collision course right now in our nation with the Lord about this issue because we want him to come no matter what he will never come in our current condition not like this he is going to require us to clean up our mess before he comes in power and that's the that's the part that just offends a lot of the leaders in the church because they don't they don't like the process they like the idea but in communities that have seen the transformation occur, it's been because they have been so obedient to the Lord to remove anything that offends him, anything that's not holy. They, they don't want anything to affect his presence and his power. So that process is easily, uh, it's just easily described by Second Chronicles 7.14. Right? How many of you have heard of that? We prayed it. We talk about it. You know, we love that verse. We love that scripture. But one of the mistakes we've made is we've been praying Second Chronicles 7.14. But Second Chronicles 7.14 is not a prayer. It's not a prayer. It's something God said to Solomon. The prayer in Second Chronicles is in chapter 6, 
when Solomon is negotiating with God. He's trying to figure out, okay, your glory is coming back to the temple. Your presence is coming back to Israel after all of these years. He's nervous. He's, I mean, chapter 6 is phenomenal. And he's like, Lord, if we sin against you, but we, we repent and we return, will you forgive us? And if we do this, will you do this? He's renegotiating the terms of the covenant with God. And then the glory of God falls in the temple. And then God speaks to Solomon. So Second Chronicles 7.14 is not a prayer. It's part of the covenant lifestyle we're supposed to be leading with the Lord. See, the Lord tells him in 7.13, he says, If you get in trouble, if you notice that the heavens, when I close up the heavens and I send pestilence, you know, and I send um, uh, sickness, and in other words, the Lord is saying, when you notice your heavens are closed and I'm sending pestilence among the people, when you know you're in trouble, there's something you're supposed to do about it. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 is the prescription for a people that's in trouble. It's the prescription. But we can't pray the prescription. You can go to the doctor. They can assess your condition. Yeah, you have this condition. You need to take this medicine. You go to the pharmacy. You get the medicine. You put it in your, on your countertop. Is that going to fix your condition? Having the prescription, knowing the prescription, does not change your condition. You've got to take it. You've got to apply it. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a lifestyle, not a prayer. You can't pray your way into humility. You have to actually humble yourself. You can't pray your way into intimacy with, before God's face. You have to actually get there in front of his face. And you can't pray about sin. You have to actually repent for it. Sounds, I know it sounds so, so simple, but this is where we're stuck in the church. When people go through the face-to-face process, I couldn't, it was interesting the first couple of years, um, I realized the church had no idea how to repent. Had no idea. Bless, I, mean, I was like, wow. We get up and people just, oh, Lord, please help me with my humility. Oh, Jesus, please help me with my sin. And we would pray, just pray about all of our sin. And we realized we had to actually coach people not to pray about the sin, repent for the sin. Don't pray for the church to be humble. Humble yourself. So Second Chronicles 7.14 is the process. When that becomes a lifestyle, it prepares the way of the Lord into a community. For instance, in the village I visited, they looked at their condition. The heavens were closed. The churches were divided. The land wasn't bearing fruit. The young adults were in rebellion. There was adultery. There was, you know, just, just, there was poverty. You know, there, nothing was flourishing. Nothing was prospering. And the, commun- the leaders, the elders of the village, looked at their condition and they decided, we're in trouble. This is trouble. The Lord has closed up the heavens over us. Now, what they didn't do, they didn't go out and just demand that the heavens be open in the name of Jesus. Okay, the Lord didn't say that's what we're supposed to do. They didn't go out and just rebuke the pestilence that was stalking. I'm not saying we don't do that sometimes, but that doesn't, that's not what God told us to do. What they did for several weeks is they started meeting at 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning as the elders of the village, 
and they asked the Lord. They just humbled themselves before the Lord. And they asked the Lord, you show us everything, anything that's offended you, anything in my life, anything in, our, in our, my family, anything in my congregation, and anything in our community, God, that's offended you, anything we've done in our past, in our, our forefathers' generation, you know, in our present tense situation, they just absolutely were just totally, radically obedient to the Lord. This particular village had a river that ran through it. And the river had been polluted for 42 years. It was a rusty color. It was poisonous. The government said, you're not allowed to drink it. <clears throat> and it was, you know, just, and it ran, you know, because they're out in the bush. And so the water was really important. It's how you wash your clothes, how you wash your dishes, how you get your drinking water. So it was a hardship for 42 years. As the leaders went through this process, I think they went through it for two or three weeks, they repented for every known sin in every home, in every congregation, not a lot, probably only 300 people in the village, in between themselves, between different tribes. They had people from other islands, from clans come. They repented you know, because they were cannibals. There's lots of tribal warfare. I mean, they were so thorough. Their heart was, we want to make sure that there's nothing in this community that would offend the presence of a holy God. We want to host him. We want him to stay. We want him to dwell among us. So they just did everything that they could think of. And at the end, when they'd done everything, it's interesting, uh, it said that about Solomon, when he had done everything that was in his heart to do, he went to bed. When they had done everything that was in their heart to do, they got out some oil they anointed every home, every you know, common house and their school and uh, their churches, their land. They anointed everything and they offered it together as a village. They stood out in the middle of the village and they offered their village back to the lordship of Jesus. They said, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our lord. Come and live here among us because that's what you promise. And we've done our part. If my people will is followed by, then I will, right? So they did the if I will. Lord, we've repented for everything that we know of. Now will you come and fulfill this covenant and come and live among us? The next morning as they were getting up, the women looked down, the water was splashing, and the river had run clear. The river running through the village turned completely clear. And they were obviously rejoicing. They got in it. Some people got healed. As they got in it, they were drinking it. The scientists came back out and declared that the water was completely pure. But they were baffled. They were bothered because they couldn't explain how it happened. And then, you know, I'd heard that story for years, and I'd visited the the village of Nuku, and we got uh, such a special place. Just this thick peace of the Lord. In fact, is the last time I went, I took some young adults, and we walked through the gates of the village. Now, I've been in this village a number of times, but this time, we walked through the gates, like these two posts, and we were physically pushed back by the manifest presence of God. It felt like this hurricane force wind. It physically pushed Sarah and I backwards. And I went to the, the chief, and I said, what's going on in Nuku? He said, oh, he said, the Lord told us that people would be coming from all over the world. We had to pray more. We had to fast more. 
I mean, we're talking about now about 50 people at the end of the earth fasting and praying every morning. But God's living with them in a very tangible way. Anyway, a couple of years ago, the, one of the chiefs from Fiji was with us in Kansas City. And he mentioned that the scientists kept coming back out to test the water. And I said, Vuni, why? Why don't they just admit that God has done a supernatural work and healed that river? He said, you know, I don't know. He said, I think maybe because it's still polluted upstream and downstream. It's an hour hike to get to the source of the river, and it comes out rust-colored. And when it leaves the village of Nuku, it reverts back to a very polluted river. When the river of God comes through a community living in covenant relationship with him, what does the promise say? I will hear you, I will forgive your sin, and I will what? I will heal your land. Now, I've always believe that but see i thought that last part was like for after the lord returned but what we're seeing in transformation i think i can say i think without exception is the healing of the land the actual land is a part of what god's doing in every case that we know of which is interesting so the process was what i'm trying to define that it's a the process of transformation is where god's people intentionally do everything they can to return to covenant relationship with God. Covenant relationship is what God intended in the beginning, and it's, what we're, it's why we're in trouble now. Our, our sin breaks our covenant relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 59, what does God say? My arm isn't short, it can't save you, right? I can deliver you. My, you know, I'm not deaf, I can hear your cries. So what is the Lord saying? It's not my fault that you're in this mess. It's not my fault. I can save you. I can deliver you. But it's your sin that has separated you from me. If our sin has separated us from the presence of God, then doesn't it make sense that we need to repent for the sin to then have the presence of God return again to our community? I mean, to me, it's so clear that people don't want to do it because it seems too hard. Um, and I understand that, you know. Um, I got to a point after being in ministry for a long, long time and talking about it and talking about it. If we don't, after a while you get tired of talking about it and you get tired of, of not doing the hard things. You know, there's only so long, that you, so many times you can just keep going around the mountain, around the mountain, around the mountain. Sooner or later we've got to go up hard or not hard, um, and it's really not hard. It's just a perception because of our pride, honestly. But So that's what transformation is. It's not about just about personal salvation. It's about God's lordship over every sphere of the community. It impacts our homes, our hearts. It impacts our neighborhoods, our businesses. It doesn't mean that they become perfect. But it does mean that your community will never look the same if it's been transformed. Now, I just want to make a distinction. You can have, there's a difference between natural transformation and supernatural transformation. In other words, we can do a lot of transformation in our own effort and our own strength, in our own resources. And mostly that's what we see reflected in, in American ministries. We have so many resources, so much time, people, 
you know, facilities, and we have we identify problems that we want to fix, and so we do what we can, um, and we can bring a measure of transformation to a community. You buy an old house, you rehab it, you put a homeless family in it. Have you transformed the home and the family? Yeah, yeah, you probably have, but that would be a natural definition. It was it was dependent on your compassion, your resources, you know, and the need. Supernatural transformation is very different. Supernatural transformation requires the presence of a supernatural God. And it's when people realize, and I think we all need to realize, that the problems facing our community can't ever be solved with our human ingenuity, our agendas, our resources, our good intentions. The issues we're facing in our communities today are rooted in spiritual causes. They're rooted in in spiritual issues, and you can't resolve that by just getting your city to vote this way or that way. You will never, this is not about political or church reformation. We are not trying to reform a bad situation. You can reform it, and I'm all for all of that, but that's not supernatural transformation. We need more than electing good politicians, having good, you know, I mean, again, I'm for all of that, but that will never supernaturally transform your community. It requires the presence of a holy God. One of the reasons is it's not just about fixing stuff. God doesn't want to just improve temporarily our bad situation. God wants to so transform it. When when we meet Jesus, he doesn't just improve us. He doesn't improve our carnal nature. Right? Jesus didn't die on the cross to improve our carnal nature. He died so that we could be born again and completely transplanted out of the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. We're adopted and now we take on his image. The word transformation comes from metamorpho, to be to have a metamorphosis, or mean meaning it changes completely from one condition to another. We're not talking about improving something. See, we have a lot of that going on right now in our nation. Ministries are seeing a little bit of improvement, and they're claiming it's transformation. Well, that's fine, except it's not that impressive. Let's rejoice in what's being improved, but let's not settle for that. I don't want the the city council to just vote the right way. I want them to be radical followers of Jesus, praying and blessing the city and standing in the gap and interceding. And, you know, we we should want everything that God has for us. So let's not settle for a lower definition. Um, and also, you can't, you can't resolve issues like hopelessness, suicide, corruption, sexual abuse, immorality. You can't resolve that by legislation, political reform, and better small groups with just the right book to, fi- you know, to fix people. These are very serious, deeply rooted issues, and they're spiritual issues, and they are going to require a spiritual solution. So we can fix some things, but when the presence of God comes into a community, he does more than we could ever imagine. I'll give you an example. Um, in, in another village in Fiji called Natalira. This was a village that had been just given over to witchcraft and idolatry. Um, 
to the point where all of their fish had disappeared. For 50 years, the fish that they caught, or I can't pronounce it, it's a really big fish. Fijians are big people, and they need big fish. And their fish had disappeared for 50 years, and now all they had, because they net fish. So the women go out, and they circle out in the bay. They get these big nets, and they just encircle the fish, and that's how they fish, you know, because they're out and just on the ocean. So they're, they're dependent on whatever comes up close to shore. Well, when those fish disappeared, all they have are things that's the size of our sardines, you know. I mean, my friend, Save, was the one saying, Fijis are, Fijians are big people. We can't, it takes a lot of little fish to feed a Fijian, you know. So, and here's what, here's what I love. You know, in Hosea chapter 4, God brings an indictment against the people. And what does he say? He said, there's, um, there's no knowledge of God in the land, but bloodshed upon bloodshed, lying, stealing, committing adultery. They break all restraint. He said, even the fish of this, the land will mourn, and the people that live in the land will waste away. Then he says, even the fish of the sea will disappear. Have you ever noticed that? Did you know it was literal? Our land suffers when we sin on the land. It defiles the land itself. And their fish had disappeared. Their fruit trees weren't producing fruit. Their crops were being overrun by wild pigs. They're, they were divided. The, kid, the young adults were in rebellion. I mean, the, the village was a mess. So they did the same process. And actually, the, the leader from Nuku went to Natalira because they were saying, hey, help us, help us. See, once Nuku was transformed, what do you think happened? Everybody around the village said, hey, wait a minute. That river's been polluted for 42 years. How did you get God to come live in your village? And so the process has spread through the nation of Fiji like that. Because once you have a fire, you can easily spread a fire. Once you have something new going on in Orange County, a hot spot, guess what? Everybody wants to know, what are you doing? What are you doing there? Oh, you know what? We realized we defended the presence of God. We actually had some responsibility, and we decided to clean up our mess and invite him to come back, and he did. That's going to be your testimony. That was their testimony. So the chief in Natal, Iraq, called the leaders from Nuku and said, Help us. So they repented it for about a, about a month. And again, this very same process, and at the end, they offered their village back to the lordship of Jesus. Um, the morning after, um, there was a young man that had committed suicide as well, and that was the turning point in the village. The morning after they committed their village back to the lordship of Jesus, the women were walking along the, the shore. It's a black sand beach. It's just beautiful. And on this side, uh, uh, like lightning, this flash of light came from heaven and ignited the sea, caught it on fire, and they saw it. All kinds of people saw it. It came back several times during the day. It was an absolutely supernatural sign in the heavens. And the Lord, when he returned, it was the mother of the kid that committed suicide that he showed himself to. And the villagers, I was thinking, if I saw something like that, I mean, they describe it. She said it was like something was moving in the middle of just this fiery pillar that came down and ignited our sea. I thought, man, I would have dropped over like a dead person. you know. I, but to them... To the Fijians who still believe in a supernatural God, it made all kinds of sense. Well, we asked him to come back. He's returned to us. He's here. The next morning they went to fish with their nets. And all of a sudden there was a tugging on the nets. 
And they started screaming, and they started calling out to the men up on the shore to bring sheets and blankets and more nets. And you know, the fish that they hadn't seen in 50 years had returned to the bay. They caught 3,000 fish that morning. 3,000 fish. 3,000 fish. I mean, I, I don't think there's more than 300 people in the village. It was excessive. It was extravagant. And, well, they couldn't eat them all, so they dried them, and they started feeding other villages. Well, that raised a big question. Hey, wait a minute. We haven't seen that fish in 50 years. Where did you get those fish? Well, let me tell you, we, we realized we defended God, and we started getting right with the Lord, and we repented for our idolatry and our division and our, uh, you know, all, all of our sin, and we asked him to come, and we anointed our water with oil in our homes, and he's returned to us, and he brought fish with him. Their land was healed, their fruit was restored, their families were restored. It's, it's just dramatic, dramatic testimony. I was telling that story in Denmark a couple of years ago. I was at a charismatic Lutheran conference. And um, I was their final speaker. It was about 3,000 people. And um, I was preaching about the demonstration of the spirit and of power. And then I told a couple of stories from Fiji. And I thought things were going great. And then at the end of the, my plenary session, I went to do a workshop, and this guy runs up to me and, stop, stop, you have to stop. You're not allowed to speak anymore at this conference. And I'm like, what? And he, people had already started coming into the room, and um, all of a sudden this chaos broke out. And what had happened is after my morning session, the Pharisees had met in the back room. And... <laughs> And they decided this was way more than they bargained for. And they were, they were trying to shut down the meeting, and the people got angry because the people wanted to hear the message. I was preaching on Hosea. And the leader said, no, you're not allowed to speak. And it was just it was one of the hardest, hardest things in my life. It was just really, really hard because the people were weeping. Oh. They were weeping. They were so hungry because the church in Denmark is 1%. And the people are not being fed, and there's no intimacy with God. And they were just pleading with me. After we stopped the workshop, they would come up to me, and they'd say, can we just go sit by the tree? We'll just sit over there, and you can teach us, and you can just teach us. And I'm like, no, I can't do that, you know? They've asked me not to. And it was just, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. My point is this. Their objection to my message was because I was talking about the extravagant love of God as demonstrated in the nation of Fiji. And they said I was preaching a, a prosperity gospel. I'm like, really, a prosperity gospel? Like, you know, like Rolexes and, you know, I'm like, that's what they meant. And I'm like, well, you know, we had this big debate. It was, it was a national incident. You know, it was just this horribly... It was just this terrible thing. And I, boy, I just fought back. I said, you know, you prove to me that God isn't extravagant. I'll believe you. But if you don't have room in your theology for the reality of who God is, how big he is, how extravagant he is, why does he give 3,000 fish to 300 people? I don't know. But when he fed the 5,000, there were 12 basketfuls left over. He's not stingy. He never just meets our need with just enough so we might survive. He's a God that will pour himself out on us lavishly if we invite him to do so. And it's not just for us. It wasn't just for Natalia Ra. It was fish to, 
provoked the thirst of a whole bunch of villages around that community. He wants people to know he's good. Taste and see that he's good. He's extravagant. We, because we're not familiar with his presence anymore in our nation, we think we have to work so hard to get him to come. But I want to leave you with this thought. We're going to take a break. Jesus wants to come more than you want him to come. This is on his heart. He created us for fellowship, not to have a long-distance, you know, like email relationship, right? That's not how he, that's not why he created humans. He created us for intimate fellowship. He wants to be with us really bad. And if he's not with us, there's probably a good reason, right? If God wanted to be here more, he would be. If he's not, there's a good reason why he's not. And the journey of transformation is understanding why isn't he here? What has offended him? Rather than theologizing it away, which a lot of people are doing, or just denying it or saying, well, he'll show up when he wants. He's sovereign. No, this is not about sovereignty. This is about sin. This is about the mess that's offended his presence. And if we can understand how, we and how we've offended him, and we can do something. See, that's the good news. If this was about sovereignty, then we just have to wait. Wow, I don't know where we are on the list, but he, hopefully he'll get around to Orange County or Kansas City one day. That's how we would respond if it was about sovereignty. God is sovereign. But this is about an intentional process. So the good news is we can actually do something about this. We can do something about it. And if we do, then it's just a matter of time before he comes. Amen? Lord, bless, just bless what's been shared and let the seed just just get into that good soil in the hearts of those who are here and let it just, um, just mix it with faith now, God, and let it take root in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have one more session before lunch. A um, couple of announcements. <clears throat> I always forget to say this. But I think it's on the flyer you had, but um, our website is just fusionministry.com, and it is full of resources. You can see the video clips at George of the documentaries there. Um, there's lots and lots of teaching there. There's tons of testimonies and stories of about 40 communities that have been through face-to-face. Um, we'll probably watch a video after the lunch break of one of those. But, there, you know, there's a whole section on the transformation of Juarez, Mexico, if you've ever heard of Juarez, Mexico. Repeat. Fusionministry.com, singular. Fusion, F-U-S-I-O-N, ministry. Oh, yeah, there's our website. Okay, so while you have that up, scroll down a little bit. That's where as Mexico pastors right there. That's Omaha, Nebraska. They're face-to-face. Washington, D.C. That's Texas A&M University. I was, they've gone through every fall. That's, a pure, that's Williamsburg. I don't know. That's East Coast. And then Washington, Washington D.C. Like, had a revival breakout in the black church. It was amazing. But scroll down just a little bit on the page. See the lady on the far right? It says face-to-face. 
There's a button there that says testimonies. If you click on that, you can watch all kinds of testimonies of pastors and families that have been restored. You can read about the transformation of Juarez, Mexico. You can read about it. You can watch video clips about it. So it's kind of a self-serve transformation website. So just go there and just read and look and listen and let the Lord stir your heart and encourage you. FusionMinistry.com. Yep. Um, <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> okay, we're going to talk about the transforming nature of God's kingdom. Um, as I was defining transforming revival or transformation... Um, one of the things that I want to just elaborate on a little bit is that transformation is actually a significant invasion of the kingdom of God. Now, I talked earlier about how this isn't something that men can produce or ministries can manage. It's actually when God's kingdom breaks in on a community or a village or a neighborhood. Now, just to be very clear, because... Uh, dominion theology has risen its head again in our day and so we have people out there that are saying that the the whole earth is full of glory and the kingdom comes in a fullness and then the lord returns i personally do not believe that's what the bible teaches so when i'm saying the kingdom comes i'm not talking about in a full way we don't get the fullness of the kingdom before the king returns but we sure should have a whole lot more of it than we have now I don't know how much of it we can get on this side, but I know we don't have very much of it now. So I'll leave that up to the Lord. I don't know if it's 50% or 80% or 10%. I don't know. But I've been in places where it's hard to imagine anything being better than what I've experienced. And yet I know it isn't even the fullness of what God's going to bring when he returns to the earth. So when I'm talking about his kingdom coming, I'm not saying in a fullness. It is in a measure but the measure is so, it's light years be beyond where any of us are right now in our communities. But when his kingdom starts invading our community, it will start touching every sphere of society. <clears throat> in other words, he doesn't just come to the church. It's when God's salvation starts destroying the works of the devil. It's when his grace replaces poverty and lack. It's when his justice conquers injustice. It's his love being manifest at a community level. Jesus is the king of a very real kingdom. Okay? He brings a kingdom with him. So wherever Jesus goes, wherever his presence is manifest, he has the full kingdom with him. And when it starts breaking in on society, it changes its laws, its norms. It, it absolutely turns upside down the status quo. It replaces everything dark with things of light. Everything full of barrenness becomes full of, it becomes life-giving. The kingdom of God is the exact opposite of the kingdom of darkness, right? Right now, our communities are governed mostly by the kingdom of darkness. And the fruit of that darkness are things like the idolatry, the immorality, the corruption, the violence, the oppression, the fear, the hopelessness. What are those things indicative of? They're not indicative of the kingdom of light. They are fruit of the kingdom of darkness. So whether you like it or not, you're living in a war zone in your community. There is a war going on 
for the people and the land where you live. There's a clash of kingdoms. And right now, for the most part, my guess is your community is being more influenced by the kingdom of darkness than the kingdom of light. When God comes with transformation, he starts invading the darkness with his light. It's Isaiah 60. He breaks in on our darkness. Now, we all agree theologically that God wants to send or manifest his kingdom on the earth. Right? He gave us that prayer to pray. Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Where? Here on the earth as it already exists in heaven. So we all know that prayer. We all hopefully believe that. And yet we've not necessarily seen the manifestation of it. So what's, I think that's part of the frustration we feel. We believe something that we've never seen. Right? How many of you feel the frustration? We read it. We believe it. Lord, we want to see that. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. But we're living in the tension of what we believe compared to what we've experienced in our experiential reality. So what transformation does, and I love this, transformation starts closing the gap between what we believe and what we experience. When you start seeing God transform your workplace, or your neighborhood, or your family, or your congregation, or your community, you're going to start actually seeing. You'll say, oh, that's what it looks like when the kingdom comes to the city council meeting. Wow. Oh, that's what it looks like when God's kingdom breaks in on our school, and they're all repenting, and the glory of the Lord is falling. You're going to start seeing with your own eyes what it looks like. And then he's going to close the gap between what you've always believed but you've not seen. And that to me is the joy. It's like, wow, I've, I have seen that in some places where I can actually imagine now what it looks like. In Fiji, for instance, one of the times I was there for, we were meeting with some um, inter, our international transformation team, and we had some leaders from parliament coming to speak to us. And this, this woman, she's one of my heroes, <clears throat> amazing woman, her name is Asanatha, she was late getting to our, our conference, and the reason she was late, she didn't make any big deal about it. She said, oh, I'm so, so sorry, I'm late, but Parliament went long today. We spent three hours just praising and worshiping the Lord before we got down to our business. I'm like, what? What planet are you from? <laughs> their Parliament worships the Lord before they conduct their national business. I mean, I could go on and on and on about stories like that. What does it look like when the kingdom of God invades politics, even politics? When prime ministers stand up and confess and repent for their sins publicly and then get elected because they did it. You know, things we can't even imagine. But that's, that's the nature of God. He will close the gap between, he will do things that will blow your mind. The fact is, if it doesn't blow your mind, it's just not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not something you can easily imagine. It's way beyond. And I think he loves to exhilarate our hearts like that. God clearly in transformation is doing things beyond our wildest imagination. Okay, I'll tell you one more story. The stories, I know they're of the non-Western world, but it really does get at the nature of God. In the Canadian Arctic, right up by the North Pole, people there, um, the the Inuit people, the Eskimo people we call them, um, 
are people that live on the land and they live on caribou, you know. Like our Native Americans lived with buffalo. The caribou is a major source of food, clothing, you know, they just, you don't want to know all the things they do with a caribou. <clears throat> I've had it explained to me. Um, anyway, they, their land was desolate and barren, and they hadn't seen caribou for four summers, which was a real hardship for them. And a transformation team went through this community. And my assistant at the time was up there. I was in Denmark being persecuted. And she was up in the Arctic. <clears throat> I know. I thought that is so not fair. She was up in the Arctic with a team from Fiji. The team from Fiji went to the Arctic to train them in the transformation process. How cool is that? How cool is that? One end of the earth to the other. I mean, it was so amazing. So they're going village to village. Well, this community called Pangerton um, hadn't seen caribou in four summers. That's a big deal. And they started going over the healing of their land principles. They started teaching. They started looking into their history of how European whalers had come into the Baffin Island Bay, and they had traded alcohol and guns for the Inuit women. And they had introduced a spirit of adultery into the culture and so now every young girl, 12 years and up, all, all had babies out of wedlock. There's lots of immorality. And so they went out on the tundra, and they had this reconciliation process. And they, it was powerful. And they, they asked the Lord to look on the sin of their forefathers, and they, they made it right. They repented to one another, and they reconciled, and they repented to the Lord and put oil on the spot. The next day, I think it was like 15,000 caribou walked into that spot. A whole herd came right into the tundra, right on the spot that they had repented the day before. And the, their park service, whatever, took an aerial photograph, which I have. It just shows this massive herd of caribou. Now, is that, you know, skeptics would say, well, sure, they were migrating, they came by. Well, that's fine, except... For four summers, they weren't there, and they happened to show up on the same spot the day after they repented on the land. See, creation responds to the Lord. Creation groans under the weight of sin. But when it's liberated because of the sons of glory, when, when, when people start dealing with the defilement of the land and the, the curse on the land is broken, it starts prospering in extravagant ways. You know, why 15,000 caribou? Why not 15? Why not 300 fish? Why 3,000? I mean, he's just doing the most amazing. I mean, I could go on and on about little trees in Thailand, papaya trees. Baby papaya trees are producing fruit. They're this big. I mean, just the shrimp industry. I mean, he, it's just the nature of God. And when he lands anywhere near us, we're going to be the beneficiaries of all of his extravagance. And you don't need caribou, and you probably don't need the fish. I don't know what your need is, but God does. So he might come to you in a different way. My guess is he will. But he's going to still come to you with his same nature of goodness and extravagance and mercy. So that's the objective evidence. You should be able to measure when transformation occurs. So we want to hold the standard high. I'm going to give you a couple principles of God's kingdom. One, God has made provision through Jesus Christ for the redemption of all things. Of all things. That's, that extends way beyond personal salvation. 
That means, and the reason we need transformation is because of the fall. I wish if we had time today, I was going to put all that on a whiteboard and just look at what happened in the fall and how it's recovered in the cross. But we need transformation because everything that was created has been marred and uh, defiled by sin and rebellion, right? That's why we need, if, if we hadn't had a fall, we wouldn't need transformation is my point. But everything in creation has come under the effect of sin and rebellion because of the fall of man. But God has made provision in Jesus Christ for the redemption of all things. And when I say all things, when it means everything, it means everything. But here's how we think in the Western world. We think, you know, I'm glad for the blood of Jesus to save my soul, but we don't have faith that his blood was enough to change our surroundings or our circumstances. It's like we think his redemption is like a bad insurance policy. You know, it covers some things, but not other things. You've got to read the fine print. And that's not what redemption is like. When he says everything is going to be redeemed, he really means everything. But what happens is we don't have faith. So we, we tend to think all these things are under the control of the enemy and it's never going to change. But there is nothing in creation that is outside the possibility of being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Nothing. Whether that's a mayor that just is antagonistic toward the Lord, whether it's a neighbor you have that, you know, you just can't get along with, whether it's a, a family member, whether it's, it's something big like our, our national circumstances, there is nothing beyond the scope of God's provision in the cross to bring redemption. It's just a principle of his kingdom. So he wants to manifest his prayer on the earth. Two, God's kingdom is near and available in this age. We don't have to wait till we die to experience the kingdom of God. We should be experiencing the kingdom of God now in our day. The Holy Spirit will bring aspects of it into, our, into this very age as a down payment of what's to come. And it's expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. God makes it clear in his word what the kingdom of God is like. And it's interesting, if you read through the, the Sermon on the Mount, contains a value system of the kingdom of God. But when you read it, it's exactly opposite of the value system of the American culture. We're going to get to that more after the break. But Jesus expresses the nature of his kingdom in the Beatitudes or in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he tells us to pray that that kingdom will come, that that value system will invade our culture, our neighborhoods, and our community. So it is available and it's near. Now here's something I just love. The prime, Well, actually, John the Baptist only had one message, right? Repent. <laughs> he had one message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand or is near. But you know what? That was Jesus' primary message as well. He speaks of the kingdom over 100 times. It was his message and it was his mission. He came to introduce a kingdom that's not of this world to this world. And transformation is that kingdom. But here's what I think is really cool. The motivation for repentance isn't because we're bad people. The, the motivation to repent is because there's another kingdom that's at hand. 
So our repentance, our being restored to fellowship with God and turning from our sin should not be focused on what we have to give up, what we feel bad about, what we feel addicted to, you know, just all of our selfish desires and the lusts of our flesh. We're like, oh, I don't know if I can turn that off. You know, we're so focused on what we think we're going to be missing out on. But the motivation for our repentance is, hey, there's another kingdom at at hand. It's near to you. And if you repent from the ways of this world, guess what? You can walk in the ways of this one. The only way to get into the kingdom of God is to repent for your affections for the other kingdom. The American church is trying to have it both ways. We want to live in the kingdom of our status quo, where our flesh is unaffected, where we don't sacrifice anything. We get what we want. We get it when we want. We, you know, it's our own, we just kind of run our own lives and our own priorities and agendas. But then we're conflicted because we're Christians, and so we say we want his kingdom to come. But those things are at odds. Those kingdoms are on a, they're colliding all the time. And you have to choose which kingdom you're going to live in. And if you want transformation, you have got to step into the reality and value system of the kingdom of God. And the only way to get into that kingdom is to turn your back on the other kingdom. That's what repentance does. We're in this kingdom of of darkness. We repent for our evil deeds and our lust of our eyes and our flesh. We repent for those things because, oh, there's another kingdom at hand, and righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want this kingdom. So I'm going to turn from these ways of selfishness, impatience, bitterness, you know, control, pride, lust. I'm going to actually say no to these things Because there's another option. If the American church understood the kingdom, she would turn from the ways of the world. If if we really had a grasp on the beauty and the um, just how amazing that what God is offering to us in His kingdom, if we had any idea of what's available to us, we would not hang out in this mess. We just wouldn't. So part of the the challenge in the American church and that's why we do the face-to-face process is to taste and see that the Lord is good because believers really don't know that anymore they don't know him like that anymore they don't know there's an option so they're they're trapped they're believers but in captivity to the culture and kingdom of darkness I mean how many of you feel that way it's like we're we've become captive to something Our hearts want to be free. Our hearts want to get out, but we don't know how. Repentance is one of those things that helps us get out and get in to the kingdom that's at hand. That's what John the Baptist preached. Repent because the kingdom of God is near. Jesus called it what? The good news of the gospel. Why is it good news? Because it brings justice. It brings righteousness. It brings healing. It brings life. It brings hope. You guys, that's good news. And our communities need good news. And the good news is the kingdom of God. But you don't add it to another kingdom. You can't just mix them and try to live in the tension. That's why we're so, we're just so conflicted. So God's kingdom is a redemptive kingdom on the earth. It brings light to places of darkness. It brings healing to places that are devastated. In other words, when his kingdom comes, when a people host his presence and his kingdom comes to a neighborhood, let's just say a neighborhood, 
all of a sudden light is going to start changing and driving away the darkness. Things are going to start to change. It's not possible for Jesus to draw near and not change something. Jesus didn't come to the earth to offer a new theology. He didn't come to offer a new improvement project. He came and died to bring us redemption. So he's not interested in temporarily improving our situation. He doesn't want to make it a little less bearable to live in our mess. He actually wants to pull us out and set us into another reality that we live from in our hearts We live out of another value system. We live with a kingdom vision and a kingdom purpose. And all of a sudden, we start growing up into who we're supposed to be as the body of Christ. It says of Jesus in Matthew that when when he came, he came to the people that were dwelling in darkness. He was quoting Isaiah. It says it, it came and under the people that were living under the shadow of death, For those people, a great light had dawned. He's fulfilling Isaiah 60, isn't he? But that's what happens when Jesus comes to a community. A great light starts dawning on the darkness of community. And that's what he wants to do for us as well. Every healing, every deliverance, everything that Jesus did was an invasion of his kingdom into Satan's territory. The kingdom of God is confrontational. It doesn't just come up alongside and make a peace treaty. If you invite Jesus to come into a place and it's filled with demons and darkness, there's going to be a war. It's not going to last very long, but he's going to confront the darkness. Darkness never overwhelms light. Light always prevails against darkness. So every time Jesus healed a sick body, he was confronting the activity of the enemy, wasn't he? When we start hosting his presence, he's going to start invading and confronting the darkness. That's why he can do so much more than we can do. Because his very presence declares war on the territory that the enemy has held in your community. Transformation is God's kingdom rule and heaven's realm. Replacing the kingdom of darkness and our world system to a God-centered reality. See, right now in our communities, when darkness is prevailing, who's getting all the attention and all the glory? What happens when you turn on your nightly news? Is it acknowledging Jesus and all the good work he's done during the day in your community? All the wonderful miracles? All the people that got saved, healed, and delivered, and the righteousness and justice in your city government? That's not in the news we have in Kansas City. Who's being glorified? When your land is defiled and the kingdom of darkness is prevailing, the enemy is getting the glory. One of the reasons God, this, why this process has to be supernatural and not man-centered is it's not about ministries getting the glory. It's not about the church that finally breaks through you know, and they get all the attention. God wants something more than that. He wants to so redeem a place that his glory is evident and your media will report on it. That's one of the indicators of transformation. I've seen this over the years. I mean, we've seen it a lot in our ministry in cities. Just people will go through the face-to-face process and the next day in the front headlines, some big 
thing would have happened, you know, we knew, we knew it was because we were humbling ourselves and praying. The Lord was intervening on our behalf. So when his kingdom starts breaking in, you will notice. I want to tell you a story um, from Houston. Uh, there's a couple of suburbs in northern Houston that have been going through face-to-face pretty regularly, and it's growing and expanding. And um, one of the Hispanic community there, um, they started really focusing on meeting in their homes and with their families to the point where this one lady, all of her neighbors started coming to her, her house. They weren't invited. You know, she'd lived there for a long time, but all of a sudden, all of her neighbors wanted to come visit her home to the point she planted a church in her apartment complex. She started with 30 unbelievers. Now, why did they start coming to her home? Because she had cleansed it. They, were, they had anointed themselves. They, they were hosting the presence of the Lord. It wasn't a big citywide revival. It was her house with her family. But there's a principle called divine magnetism in revival. It means when God's presence is present, he will draw all men to himself. So all of a sudden, the regular status quo of the neighborhood was no longer, it it was getting uprooted a little bit. Something started shaking and shifting in the neighborhood when they started praying in their home. And the neighbor started to come, so she planted a church in the clubhouse. It's, it's a hilarious story. She, she's overwhelmed. She's just a working mom. She's like, I didn't mean to start a church. I didn't mean to. But they just kept coming. They were drug addicts and lost people, and they're just loving them. In the next community, the House of Prayer, a guy named Mark Baker leads the House of Prayer. He took his House of Prayer, and they started prayer walking their neighborhood. And they let every neighbor know, if you need anything, we're the people you should come to. You need something painted, something fixed, babysitting, your lawn mowed, whatever you need, we're the people to come to. We want to help you. We want to love you in practical ways. One night, they were prayer walking the the neighborhood, and they came up to this home of this lady, and there were eight people standing on this lawn, on this front lawn. And... One of the women standing on the lawn had a big growth on her side. They could see it right through her T-shirt, big tumor. And Mark said, hey, do you mind if we pray for you? She said, no, that's okay. You can pray for me. They gathered around this lady, prayed for her. The tumor shrunk, and she got healed. Right there on a lawn in Houston. And all eight people gave their hearts to Jesus. Now, that's not conventional ministry. Right? They didn't go up to them and say, hey, come with me to church on Sunday. Hey, here's the four spiritual laws. I'm not saying we don't do that. But what I'm saying is, wherever the king goes, the kingdom will follow. And we should see manifestation of it in our neighborhoods and in our community. And I think that's the most exciting thing in the world. I love going to church, but boy, I love it when the church gets outside the wall. Sometimes I think the Lord... Like I picture the church, I think he wants to take it, turn it upside down, and shake it really hard till all the Christians come out. <laughs> We've got a guy, I think this was in, where was I? Houston, this was in Houston. They were doing the face-to-face process last spring or last fall, and this guy was ministering to homeless men under, that lived under a bridge. He said, Rhonda, man, I don't know that they're going to come to the prayer meetings. And I'm like, You don't have to bring him to the prayer meetings. You can do face-to-face under the bridge. So he did. He just brought the prayer guide to the homeless guys under the bridge, and they went through their process together. 
we, we've got to start thinking outside the religious box of what God has in mind. <clears throat> in every revival, this is one of the main points of what God's doing right now. In every revival, and this is for sure one of, if not from my perspective, the most important thing God's doing right now, or most obvious thing he's doing right now, is he is inviting his people back to wholehearted devotion. I wish we could just focus on that a, a lot more today. That's just that's a cry of my heart. But the Lord, I feel like the Lord is very jealous and very, I don't know what, how strong to even use the language, he's very concerned about his church. And he's very jealous for the affections of her heart. And the first thing, and that's why you know the face-to-face process is just the first baby step, is, is calling the people of God to rediscover the love of God, to return to intimacy with the Lord and come out of the routine of our religious experience. And that's been, in every revival in history, the core of it has been a, a, a fresh flame of fire for God in God's people. That's what revival is. So we will have to have that before we have the transformation that follows. He always transforms his bride, always, in a season of revival. As a redeemed people, we are supposed to become like Jesus, right? We're not only called to teach a message about him. See, that's what the church is doing now. We're good at teaching about Jesus. We don't necessarily look a lot like Jesus, and his intention is that we're conformed into his image. And in Second Corinthians, it's this amazing scripture where Paul says, we're, we all with unveiled faces, beholding as, if, as in a mirror the image of Jesus, are being transformed into the very same likeness or image from glory to glory. That's what happens when we're transformed. We, I, I picture the things of the world as veils that cover our faces, the sin. Paul's talking about the veil of unbelief, but I also believe it speaks of when we start getting involved in the things of the world, it covers our faces. And he wants to bring us before his face with an unveiled face so we can meet him face, that's why we call it face-to-face, a face-to-face encounter, because the promise is if we behold his image, it doesn't mean behold my image so you can preach a good message about it. It's behold my image so you can take on my image from glory to glory. I mean, that's the great mystery of the universe is that messed up believers like us with all of our stuff can actually take on the image of Jesus and and then reflect it. I mean, who can understand that? But that's what he promises us. In times of consecration, I picture the Lord coming to us with like a, a big wet sponge and it's like he wants to just scrub our faces clean to scrub off the image of the world and then he wants to i I actually saw him do this in peoria illinois we had a thousand people going through the face-to-face process it was off the charts what god did and the night we had the launch i saw the lord i saw this corporate bride and I felt, the Lord let me feel how he felt. Twelve congregations, a thousand people plus their families, gathered in a room ready to seek the face of the Lord. It was just beyond anything I'd ever felt. And the Lord let me feel how he felt. See, we get excited. 
We have no idea how he feels about being able to meet with his bride in an undistracted way for three weeks. And then I saw him go up to her face, and he just tilted her chin, just looked in her eyes. That's what he wants to do. He wants to wash the image of the world off our faces. He wants to tilt our our faces up, and he wants a face-to-face encounter. And the promise is we then will take on that very same image. And then light will begin to shine out of darkness. Now, once we, once the church, because transformation happens here first. It doesn't start externally. It starts in our own hearts. Then it goes to our marriages and our families, our congregations, and finally the community. Don't even think or worry about your community, you guys. That's just not the assignment for probably a long time, probably a while. But our focus right now is our own hearts and our own minds and our families and the congregations. We have seen so much transformation in, on those levels. And if you have that, you do have the, the community will be affected eventually. But we don't start with the external. We start with the internal. If the church falls in love with Jesus again, If the church starts wiping the image of the world off her face and she can have that face-to-face encounter, she starts taking on the image of Jesus. She She can then start reflecting it. When that happens, you now have the bride of Christ actually reflecting who he is to the community. And that's when you have transformation. The community doesn't want any more of our religious teaching. They don't want any more of our programs and our pamphlets and our stuff. I mean, we, you know, they just don't want it. But Jesus is compelling. See, they're not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the church and, and Christians who they perceive to be hypocrites, which in all fairness we are. But when we start taking on the image of Christ and we start reflecting that to our neighbors and our coworkers, I mean, it, it just, just works. It really, really works. And he then is ministering to them on a level that we can't in our own good intention. So a prepared, revived bride will impact society. So as we're looking at consecration, we, wanna, we want to sit with the Lord until we really are transformed into his image. Not for 21 days. The 21 days is just a baby step so we can transition into a lifestyle. Whatever we behold, we're going to become. Whatever we're sitting in front of, we're going to take the image on, right? But if you're beholding the face of Jesus, you're going to start taking on his image. Whatever you behold, you become. And what you become is what you reflect. You can't reflect something that you're not. That's empty religious teaching. Have you ever met people like that? I remember before I got saved... I didn't. I thought one of the reasons I didn't get saved for a long time, because I thought Christians were so weird. I mean, I just they were so weird, you know. And I was working in the corporate world, and I remember this guy named Tim. And he, I knew he loved the Lord, but honestly, the guy would come to work with this big grin on his face. Every his house could have burned down. His wife left him, and his dog died. He'd go, "Praise God, Hallelujah, have a good day, Rhonda." And I'm like, "What is wrong with you? That's weird." It's not normal, you know. He was just, 
it was some weird religious thing. And, and, and he was trying to convert me. And I'm like, I don't want to be like you. It's weird. You know, I'm like, where's your mind? Where's your head? Where's, you have an, where's your intelligence? I, it, to me, it was like this weird religious facade, you know. Because we try so hard. We were talking about this over dinner last night. We try so hard to put, put on a face and act like good Christians. The truth is we're all so messed up and broken inside. And Jesus, he cares. He doesn't want to use you to bring transformation to your community. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to have intimacy with you because he loves you. You're not a means to an end. He doesn't want to just use you. So we have to become honest about where we are, what's going on on the inside, and just all we have to do is get before his face. That's all we have to do. And then he will start the process of transforming us. And the rest is really just a byproduct of that. When you take on his nature, you can start securing the atmosphere of your home. We're going to talk about that in the last session. You know, So when we're looking at transformation, it starts inside. And it starts with beholding becoming and then we can reflect and impact society around us and that's how transformation occurs when you meet leaders or people that have been in transformation what you notice about them is it, they're just like Jesus they're just they're humble they're just they're sweet there's just a sweet spirit about them just a lot of humility nobody thinks they're anything they're not writing books or not you know they're not anybody anybody would know you'd kn- you wouldn't know any of their names And yet they're giants in terms of what God's doing in the earth. So that transformation of our own hearts and minds is where we have to start. And when we turn from these wicked ways, we can step foot into his kingdom. And then we get to participate with our beloved to carry his kingdom out into our community. I mean, we can live a regular, dull, boring life, working, going to bed, you know, doing all the stuff that we do, all the routines of our life, but you weren't created for that. You weren't created to live a routine life just trying to do what your culture around you is telling you to do. You were called to be a revolutionary and a radically devoted lover of Jesus. And he is inviting you into that. There's no doubt in my mind. Amen. Bill's in charge now. Eric. Eric, uh, we're going to um, invite our dear uh, Pastor Eric to um, pray over the uh, the offering, um, and then after that, I, there's a couple of instructions that I'd like to give you, Eric. Yeah, we have got a, a few minutes before the the food will be here, so I just, as you were talking about the the kingdom of God breaking into our reality um, and how it's one of those things where we we tend to focus on what we have to let go of instead of being excited about what we get. It makes me think of of when I take my son to someplace like a zoo or something. You know, I think of the Santa Ana Zoo. We used to take Ethan there a lot. And we'd walk in, and the first thing he comes to is the gift shop. And, of course, he has to go in there in the gift shop, and there's all these stuffed animals and these toys and these pictures of them. And he's like... He just gets so excited about being there that that's where he wants to be. He wants to be in the gift shop with the trinkets. And I'm going, dude, you're excited about that. Turn from this and go outside the real things out there. And that really is a picture of what I feel like you are 
revealing to us is that we live in the midst of the kingdom of God. It's breaking in all around us. And many of us play at it. We're, we're, we're stuck in the gift shop going, this is good enough. I got a friend or two. They, they know a little bit about me. I'm putting on a good face. People have accepted me. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to mess with the, the relationship here. So I really don't want them to know the real me. And that's enough. But what we're invited to is something so much deeper, the real thing. And God doesn't want us to, to just settle for trinkets. And so um, we have an opportunity right now. First thing, what Rhonda is inviting us into, and I'm just, I just got to say thank you for your realness. Because I have been to seminar. Yeah, yeah. I know that this flows out of experience and out of a, a true passionate love for Jesus. And I just thank you for how real you are. Um, this is one of about 14 communities around the country that Rhonda and, and those that she is in ministry with are ministering to. We, as Orange County, are one of 14 different places that they are actively involved in. And her job is to simply scatter seed. She's not the one who is going to bring about transformation here in Orange County. Bill and Pete... You know, Pastor Lee and myself are not going to be people who are going to bring about transformation here. We need to be transformed. She's simply scattering seed. It's God who will ultimately cause it to grow. But we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to help in that. And so the invitation is, is twofold. First, you got these on your seats. Um, this is, we are inviting you to not make today the last part of this journey. This is kind of the appetizer. The real meal is coming at the end of this month, and we invite you to participate in that. So I ask those of you who call Lighthouse Home, those of you who are, are, are connected with influencers, those of you who have friends and family that you go, you know what, I don't want this just for myself. I want this for my family. I want this for my next-door neighbors, for my coworkers. Invite them. We want to have some sort of an idea of who's in. So if you would, just fill this out. Now, you may go, I'm not really sure about this. She'll talk more about what it'll look like. So you can hold on to this if you're not ready to make a commitment. But if you're like, I'm in, I, want to just, I don't want to lose this card, fill it out, and as we're about to take the offering, you can drop it in there. That's one tangible way to respond. Another thing is we just want to bless Rhonda in her ministry. She doesn't get paid to come out here. She's not doing this for money. She's doing this because she has experienced, she's tasted and seen what God is doing and she desires, to, she's been called to just continue to be a part of advancing the kingdom into our country and here into Orange County. And so we have an opportunity to, to bless Rhonda, to bless Fusion Ministries. We, I know many of you were under the impression that you were going to, to need to pay some money towards lunch. Between influencers and Lighthouse, we're going to cover that. So you don't need to pay for that. There's not going to be a sign-up sheet. You don't have to pay five bucks. So if you brought money for that, awesome. Drop it in the offering. Um, and let's bless them instead. And if there are other ways above and beyond that that you want to bless Fusion Ministries and bless Rhonda, please do so. Not because it's required. Not because God won't bless you if you don't. But simply because we want to say we are so thankful for you being here. And we want to advance this towards other communities so that next year it's not 14, it's 20, 30, whatever, you know. So I'm going to pray for the offering. Then we've got some people. There's some red bags. And, 
Yeah, checks. Make them out to Fusion Ministries. Don't make it out to Influencers. Don't make it out to Lighthouse. Make it out to Fusion Ministries. And are there any other instructions before that? Okay, we're going to take offering. I'm also going to pray for lunch right now, if that's okay. And so when the church rose up, the Lord started sending, I mean, there's congressmen involved. There's uh, the FBI got involved. They started arresting all the uh, drug dealers. I mean, it is a tremendous, that is the most powerful DVD, um, powerful DVD. And you can look at the clip on our website and instructions where you can go buy it. But that's a good one to get. Um, yeah, so um, stirs my heart to see those guys. So our, our topic for this session is the status quo. We're going to look at what that is because the status quo is like, it's like if you're a fish and you live in, in water, you don't notice the water that you swim in. It's just what you swim in, right? So our culture um, can be like a hidden danger that we don't understand how it's affecting us or impacting us. I believe personally that this, the church in our nation is in a state of spiritual captivity. And what I mean by that, and, and actually there's a message on the back table called the church on death row. It's a good message, and it talks about um, the captivity of the church versus the power of the cross to deliver her out of the status quo. But I believe we are in a state of spiritual captivity. We didn't get here overnight. We're not going to get out overnight. One of our big issues is we don't even necessarily know we are in captivity. We might suspect it, but I'm sure we don't have any idea how much captivity we're in. One of the things that 21 Days does is kind of a reality check. How many of you went through and were just confronted with, wow, I thought, I thought things were going pretty good, but this is a lot, a lot harder or a lot more is like invasive, the presence of God exposing things in our hearts that we didn't know were there. How many of you were confronted with your status quo when you went through the 21 days? Yeah. See, that's part of the journey. The 21 days doesn't fix I don't know, might fix some things. But more than anything, it's a reality check of where our affections are, what we spend our time doing, and how the Lord feels about it. So it's really important, like I mentioned earlier about going to the doctor, it's important to have a right assessment of your condition or you can't prescribe treatment. If you went to the doctor and you had, uh, you know, let's say you had diabetes and he thinks your leg is broken, Well, not only do you have a bad diagnosis and assessment, now you're going to have a wrong treatment, right? So you can't treat it. We have to be honest in our assessment of where we are. And we don't have time to go to all these scriptures, but I want to encourage you to read the book of Haggai. That is just the clearest example where the Lord says, you know, you've sown, consider your ways. It's a strong, the Lord of hosts says to the people, consider your ways. But then he considers their ways for them, right? He says, you've sown much, but you reap little. You know, you you clothe yourselves, but you're not warm. You drink, but you're never satisfied. And you earn wages to put into a bag with holes in it. The Lord says, consider your ways. We have to consider our ways. Because our ways do not produce good things. And so the Lord goes on to say, here's what you need to do. You need to go get, climb the mountain, get the wood, and build my temple so that I will take pleasure in it and be glorified through it, says the Lord of hosts. So God wants, 
He doesn't want us to be building our own things for our own purposes with our own minds, sowing and not reaping. That's not what he wants. If we consider those ways, then we need to also consider God's ways and take the prescription. And rather than building our own paneled houses that come to nothing, we need to build his house because the promise is if you build my house, I will take pleasure in that and be glorified through it. God does not ever promise us that if we build something for him in our own, with our own agendas that he'll ever take pleasure in it or be glorified through it. It's only when he builds his house. That's where he dwells. So we have to assess our current condition, and I want to encourage you to be brutally honest. We have so many ways of kind of dancing around the condition that we're in. Um, but I, I believe the church is in a serious, serious state of captivity. Um, but I also know there are hungry people in the midst of the church that want out. Now, here's the thing about captivity. Once you've been, if, if you were just taken captive today, let's say, let's say a group of guys come in the back door, they've got big weapons, and they decide to take us all hostage, and they're going to carry us off to Mexico. We would fight back. Right? I would be indignant. I would say, no, I'm not going with you. I'm an American citizen. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm, I'm a free person. I'm not a hostage. You know, there would be a reaction to the captors trying to take us captive. Right? But the problem is, if you're born into captivity, you don't know it's captivity. It's just normal life. This is just how life is. So when we contrast what the kingdom looks like to our status quo, We've never tasted the kingdom. So all we know is what seems normal. And normal in the American church is no intimacy, no power, no, um, no voice, no influence in our cities. I mean, our normalcy or our status quo is ineffective, impotent, barren, and lifeless. But it's normal. So we don't know, you know, if we don't know there's something more, something different, we just go with the flow. Not only that, but the, the influence of the culture around us has so infiltrated the church, the level of sin in the church now is just as great. In some measurements, it's actually higher than the sin that exists in the unbelieving population. Jesus, in the letters in Revelation, Jesus admonished five of those seven churches. His, his issue with them was this, that they had enculturated with the culture around them. They'd taken on their ways. And that is not what God wants for us. He wants us to be a people set apart. He wants our affections to be on him, not on the things of the world. So the issue is we just kind of go through the motions for decades. We just get to this place where, well, this is normal. I don't expect anything else to happen. And that's when things get really dull, really lifeless in the church, but what actually starts to happen is the enemy gets more and more of our time, more and more of our, our attention. In fact, is, I'll use an example. We were talking about the lunch break, one of my personal uh, pet peeves at the moment. I'll just give you an example, okay, of how the status quo can affect us in the church without us knowing it. Amazon, right? I have this happen all the time. People buy our books, and they get them on Amazon because they're cheaper and there's free shipping. Which is fine, but here's, here's the deal. Amazon is a massive, I think they're, 
what was their profits in one quarter, like a billion or $26 billion? I mean, they're literally trying to take over the world, Amazon, and they're running most Christian publishers out of business by doing that. But here's the problem with that. They are one of the biggest financers of the gay and lesbian movement, Amazon. So here's what's happening. I know, I know a lot of other publishers and other you know, Christians that are selling stuff, and there's a pressure to, if you want your book to get out in the world, you, boy, you've got to put it on Amazon, you know. And so everybody starts considering this massive thing, you know, is how you're going to sell more of your books. And they've, they've taken over all, a lot of small, they're, they're just running so many people out of business because they undercut everybody. You know, they sell my book for $6. I don't, I can't even buy my book for $6 through my own publisher. They're not making money on it. They want market share. They want everybody going to Amazon, which we are. Here's the problem. Without even knowing it, if we are buying things through that company, we are financing the gay and lesbian movement. The church, so the enemy, this is how insidious it is. The enemy gets the church to finance his dark agenda. So it's just normal. I mean, I love buying stuff on Amazon because I put my stuff in, I just hit click, it comes, it's great. I mean, you know, I understand it's convenient. But the pressure of what the world is exerting on the church with the convenience and how available it is and how cheap it is, what it really does is it's enticing us to into an agenda that is anything but righteous. I mean, we could talk about a hundred issues like that. We were just talking about that over lunch. So... Buy from, buy from actual Christian authors. Try not to go through the, if you can, you know, we, we don't want to be financing those things. I got a list a couple of months ago about all the businesses financing abortion. And it, it just, my, my life was just in a meltdown. It, it changed the airlines I flew on, the hotels I stay on, where I shop, the makeup I buy, the clothes I wear. Because I preach against the shedding of innocent blood. That's a major, major obstacle in transformation. So I'm preaching against it. How can I then go support it with my dollars and finance it? I preached about it to you on Saturday, and Monday I go buy a pair of Michael Kors jeans, and I'm financing Planned Parenthood. You know what I mean? So we're, we just have no idea how much captivity we're in. It's hard... Even if you try to figure it all out, you get so lost in it. It's so pervasive. It's almost impossible not to contribute to the kingdom of darkness right now because of we've just let it go for so long. So my point is when you're born into captivity and captivity is normal, nobody fights back. We'd fight back today, but if it was 300 years later, that's what happened in Egypt, the Hebrew slaves, right? They were slaves for 400 years. They could have left any time they wanted. Why didn't they leave? Well, they, they enculturated with the culture of Egypt around them, including the, the, the worship. They lost their identity. They lost their purpose. They lost the vision of the land God had promised to them. When we're in captivity, we lose the vision of what God has called us to, and we focus on the temporal things around us. We want to be comfortable. We want to just make life work. In other words, like the Hebrew slaves, we know how to make bricks for a living. We just keep making our bricks. Every day we get up, we make our bricks, we come home for lunch, we go back, we make more bricks. And we forget that we're a people that have been promised an inheritance in a land to partner with God and be his bride in the the redemptive purposes that he has for us. 
So our captivity is a really big deal. Even if we don't understand how much, here's the, here's the good news. The Lord is happy to show us. And he's pretty gentle about it. He doesn't, he doesn't just give us this you know, massive list because he knows we're, we'd be overwhelmed. But if you, if you start choosing the kingdom and you ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me to live in your kingdom and not be participating on any level with the Antichrist agenda, the spirit of the age, he'll help you do that. He really will. I want to look for a moment at what the spirit of the age is, the spirit of the world. The term world or cosmos, it refers to the vast system of this age that Satan uses to promote his, his agenda, and it, it exists independent of God. It consists not only of the uh, overt evil and immoral lifestyles and sin and values of the world, but it also refers to the spirit of rebellion against God. So everything that Satan is pushing in his own agenda through the kingdom of darkness is in absolute rebellion to God's kingdom and who God is. So every, every enterprise, every sphere of society has a war going on. The enemy and his agenda, the Antichrist spirit, which just means against Christ, if it's not for Jesus, there's probably an agenda to pull people away from Jesus and into his agenda. So in this age, Satan uses all of the spheres of influence, our ideas, our morality, philosophy, psychology. He uses our governments, our cultures, our education. He uses science, medicine, music, economic systems, entertainment, the fashion world, the media, religion, sports. He uses everything he can to influence those systems to oppose God. So that's why you see something like the media, you know, just with this, uh, there's an agenda behind it. It's not innocent. You see the agenda be behind Hollywood, behind the movie industry. You see agendas behind medicine and be behind science. And you know there's a clear agenda to oppose God and oppose his word. That's the spirit of the age. We've got to be aware that behind every human enterprise, there is a spirit that's pushing an agenda that's contrary to God and his word. It also, the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age, also exists in the system of the church itself. And that's what's hard for people to recognize. Because we think once we give our hearts to Jesus and we attend church, we're in a safe place. Church is a safe zone. But that's not true. The spirit of the age has infiltrated the church. The system of the church, not the ecclesia of the believers, not the body, the family, but the system, you know, the infrastructure, the systems of teaching and thought and activities and programs that aren't necessarily about Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we have a lot of that in our nation. I was just talking to Joe. you know, we were, she was sharing. She felt the same way when she moved here. She was looking just trying to find a church where God was. I mean, that was my testimony. Trying to find a church where Jesus was present. It's not easy anymore to find a church where Jesus is the highest priority and uh, there's a present tense reality of who he is in the church. It's hard to find places like that anymore. So the system is, of the church has also been affected by the spirit of the age. 
There are several things that um, create hostility to God, according to 1 John. The cravings of sinful man are desires, running after sinful pleasure, gratification. Secondly, he says, the lust of the eyes, the things that are attractive to us that we want, but God forbids. And thirdly, the boasting of what he has and does. And that refers to the pride and arrogance that comes with blessings or wealth or power or promotion or personal achievements, honor, self, self-sufficiency or independence. In other words, it's promoting ourself is the opposite of being submitted to the Lord. It's getting back to that value system of the kingdom. If you're not living in the value system of the kingdom, you're living according to another value system, you could be participating in a system that's opposing God and his word and his kingdom. Now, the good news is that the world system, the system of the world, is temporary. It's only in this present evil age, Paul calls it. It's temporary, and it will be destroyed. The judgment on the system of the world, the, the spirit of the age, the Antichrist system, that judgment has already been pronounced at the cross. So that system is temporary. That's why the Lord says, don't put your hope in it. Don't put, your, don't put any equity in a system that's already been judged and will be destroyed. See, the enemy is luring us into these systems. He wants our affections to be there. He wants us to put our hope in these things. He wants us to put our faith in these things. The problem is, if that system is opposing God and his ways, its death and judgment is going to become your death and your judgment. We can't just play in the spirit of the age and just follow our own pleasures and desires and the lust of our flesh and our eyes. You know, just we can't just hang out there and think, well, you know, I'm going to go to heaven anyway and it'll all be fine. God is going to judge the system of the world, the Antichrist system. And so we don't want as Christians to call ourselves Christians and live in a different reality which is spiritual captivity. Let me just um, contrast this a little bit. The spirit of the age exalts the mind and the self over God. It's where we think we're it. We think we know. We think we're going to make our own decisions. It's that self-sufficiency. It's an attitude that we can solve our problems and meet our needs without God. Is our nation dependent on God or not dependent on God? Absolutely, there's no dependence on God as a whole. Our nation is depending on all kinds of other things. That's the, that's the spirit of the age working through our politics, our economics, our military. Our educational system right now is absolutely overwhelmed with humanism. I mean, the things, you've probably heard them too, is absolutely shocking. And it's intentional. They're trying to teach our children humanism and all kinds of other things. So the enemy uses those spheres of authority to oppose God. Transformation is when we start hosting the presence of God so light breaks in and redeems those systems. So instead of education honoring the Antichrist system, now you have you know, an educational system that's honoring of God, allowing prayer in classrooms, you know, praying for the school board and things like that. So the system of darkness is what God is going to oppose when he comes in transformation. Does that make sense? And I just want to draw some contrast between living in God's kingdom 
and living in the spirit according to the spirit of the age. In God's kingdom, Jesus, it's Jesus-centered. The spirit of the age, it's self-centered. God's kingdom is about light. The spirit of the age is about darkness. In God's kingdom, it's living by the spirit of God. The spirit of the age is living after your flesh, where your flesh is more dominant than your spirit. In God's kingdom, it's heavenly-minded. The spirit of the age is earthly, carnal. In God's kingdom, it's about life. The spirit of the age is death. In God's kingdom, there's grace. In the spirit of the age, there's law. God's kingdom is rest. The spirit of the age is works. God's kingdom is liberty in Christ. The spirit of the age is bondage to the flesh. See, we get, we get in bondage to addictions and habits and all kinds of things, and all of a sudden, we become hostages to the very kingdom that we're trying to oppose. That's how he entraps us. That's how he makes us, he removes all of our power because now we're part of the problem. You can't be part of the solution and part of the problem. If we want the church to usher in a transforming kingdom into your community, you've got to co- become free of what you're resisting. You know what I mean? You can't be all bound up and have an effect on your community. We have to get free first. In the kingdom of God, it's about him, his kingdom. In the spirit of the age, it's about kingdoms of men. We have a lot of that in the church. Big ministries, kingdoms built around people and personalities. It doesn't make it evil, but it's not focused on the kingdom of God necessarily. The kingdom of God is God-pleasing and spirit-sensitive. The spirit of the age is man-pleasing. Boy, we could talk about that all day. The church has gotten really good at attracting people, but we're really not very good at attracting the presence of God. So we do a lot of our work trying to figure out how to get him in the door, how to keep him in the door, how to follow up on him, what kind of you know, lighting we want, what kind of services do we want, you know, what kind of coffee do we serve, how do we get people to come inside, and then how to keep them inside you know, once they're here. I remember in Argentina, in the middle of the revival, some Americans asked the evangelist Carlos Anacondia, the church was growing. He, Carlos Anaconda led 5 million people to the Lord in a short couple of years. It was amazing. The American pastors had a question for Carlos. They said, so what's your backdoor policy? I don't know if you know that lingo, but it means how do you keep somebody in the church once they're in the church? And he looked at him like, you lost your mind? He's like, a backdoor policy? We don't even try to keep people in the church. We don't have to Jesus draws them. Jesus keeps them. You know, we don't have any policy to try to convince them to stay. Jesus is very convincing. Um, I mean, the church is there. One of them meets 12. They have 12 services a day. They take a break from 12 to 1 at night. I mean, it's just, that's what revival is. If Jesus is in the church, he will draw all men to himself. We have focused on attracting people trying to convince them into the kingdom. They're not converted, and they've never really repented for their sins. So we've got 50% of the people sitting in our pews don't even know. They're not born again. 50% of people that attend church services are not born again. 50% of born-again believers don't believe Jesus led a sinless life. They don't believe hell is real, Satan is real. We have been so duped and so taken captive to these philosophies of men and building these things 
And Jesus is just watching us right now and inviting us, come with me, come up higher, come away. He's calling us out of the system. The kingdom of God pursues revelation. The spirit of the age pursues rhetoric. There's a lot of rhetoric in the church. The kingdom of God, we conform people into the image of Jesus. The spirit of the age conforms people into its own image. Sometimes you can just tell where people go to church or what they listen to, you know. They just take on the, langu- the, the lingo, the language, the phrases. I mean, I'm from the house prayer in Kansas City, and we have a whole new dictionary of things we've made up, you know. You can just tell where people fellowship, what they're following. Uh, but we don't want to be conformed into a ministry image. We want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. The kingdom of God gives generously. The spirit of the age is selfish. The spirit of God lays down its life. In the spirit of the age, we're trying to preserve and protect ourselves. We have a fear of loss. One of the reasons we get so attached to the system of the world is, is the equity we put in it. We're trying to protect ourselves and insulate ourselves. It's very self-preserving, but that's the opposite of God's kingdom. In the kingdom of God, we wait for God to raise up what God wants to raise up. But the spirit of the age causes people to scheme and organize and promote and execute its own plan in its own way and in its own time. I mean, that's really what I see happening in a lot of cities today. People want transformation, but they won't wait on the Lord. They want transformation, but they don't want to do it God's way. So they are so busy. Oh, my goodness. I could go on and on about there are so many schemes in our cities, and there is zero fruit from any of it, from any of it. You know, God's ways are higher than our ways. The kingdom of God seeks God with a whole heart, wants to be possessed by him. The spirit of the age pursues other things and people to possess them. See, in the kingdom of God, we become possessed by Jesus. We Actually, the language is a love slave. The bondservant language means we become a love slave of Jesus Christ. We're bound by love. The spirit of the age devours us to make us its own. It's possessive. That's why you have all the church fighting and com- competition and counting sheep. Everybody cares who goes where. You know, that's not how the kingdom of God works at all. It's not how God views the church either. In the kingdom of God, we long to be gathered to Jesus. In the spirit of the age influencing the church, we're seeking to gather people to ourselves. Why? Because bigger ministries mean success according to an American value system. The bigger your ministry is, or the more books you sell, or the bigger speaking engagements you get, that's what makes you important in in the spirit of the age, in the system of the world. See, if we adopt that... And we decide we want to be famous. So we're going to just take this, follow this temptation, pursue this so we can follow the, you know, these big doors and do all these big things. We're, we're being tempted by a value system of self-promotion. And then we, we become indebted to it. We start putting our equity in it. And it separates our heart from the heart of the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a big ministry. But in God's way and God's timing and promoting Jesus, not promoting ourselves. The spirit of the age, the, I'm sorry, the spirit of God's kingdom preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the spirit of the age, 
It proclaims denominations, doctrines, heritage, traditions, creeds, personal views, and opinions. And then everybody just squabbles over which one is the best. And it's just not about any of our individual agendas, opinions, theologies, or doctrines. We are bound together because of the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That has to be the absolute, not what we're building. The kingdom refers to the true body of Christ, the bride. The spirit of the age is creating a false church system of men's traditions and religions. You guys, this is really, really important. The spirit of the age, it's not... It's not an accident that the church is being carried away by the ways of the world. It's an intentional activity on behalf of the enemy. Because what he's trying to build is the harlot at the end of the age. Remember in the book of Revelation, there's two corporate women portrayed. One is the bride of Christ. She's without spot, without wrinkle. She's in love with Jesus and she's persevered she's victorious to the end and ruling and reigning with him through all of eternity the other woman portrayed is the great harlot what's the harlot comprised of the religious system full of traditions of men but without the presence of jesus jesus warned the church of ephesus of this hey good job you guys but i have this one thing against you you've left your you've lost your first love when the church loses her first love, meaning Jesus is not the preeminent focus and sustaining attraction of that body, when that is no longer reality, we call that Ichabod, don't we? When the glory of the Lord departs, his presence will start to recede and lift off the church. And then what do we have? Just a bunch of flesh. Just a bunch of flesh and a bunch of ideas and a bunch of schemes and programs and activities, but we don't have any more presence. And that church, if it continues that way, becomes the harlot at the end of the age. We actually can become part of a church that God's going to oppose at the end of the age because there's no love, there's no intimacy, there's no identity. I I see that all over the church. I've been in places lately, it's terrifying. The church is, is so able now to function without the presence of God. It is absolutely terrifying to me. We can just go through the motions with or without him. That's the truth. Our stuff just runs. You push the button, the programs run, whether he's there or he's not there. And I believe the Lord is inviting his church. For, oh, it's a wake-up call. Hey, church is kind of like about me, Right? See, Jesus was knocking at the door, right? The book of Revelation, we, that was not on an unbeliever's heart. That is not true. He was not knocking on the heart of an unbeliever. We've used that so many times. What was he knocking on? The door of a very successful, influential church called in Ephesus. Or no, sorry, Laodicea. So he's knocking on the door. Why? Because he found himself on the outside of the church. What's wrong with that picture? Jesus isn't supposed to be on the outside trying to gain entrance. He's supposed to be on the inside being worshipped and adored and being the Lord and the chief and the king. So when he's on the outside trying to get in, you guys, those are days of real warning. That should trouble us. Where is Jesus? How do we make sure he's in the center of our worship and our devotion and our lives? Because if we don't pursue him passionately, the default, if you're just going to coast, 
And this is, I mean, I think this is true in Orange County, like every other county in our nation. The church is coasting. She's going to church, living in the world. Going to church, living in the world. We're coasting. If we coast, the default button at the end of the age is not the bride. That's the warning in Scripture. If you coast and you indulge in the spirit of the age and you get sucked into this system of religiosity and routine and tradition, you know what? You are going to become part of the harlot system and you won't even know it until it's too late. I've been, I've been feeling this a lot lately. We're, we've, the church has got to wake up to the reality of the barrenness of the presence of God in her midst and she's got to come face to face with the, the level of captivity and compromise inside the church so we can get free. Why does God want us to see our, our issues? Just to say, oh, bad, bad, bad Bob. You just have too much affection for the things of the world. Bad boy. No. It's Bob. Come out of those things. Leave those things behind. Pursue me. Walk in my kingdom. Partner with me in the things that I'm going to do on the earth. It's for our good that he helps us see our captivity. It's so we can become free. My conviction is we're not being defeated in our communities by a demonic superpower. The reason we don't have transformation in our community isn't because there's some big demon over our city preventing that from happening. That's not our greatest enemy. We have two enemies, I think, more that are more serious than that. One is our flesh. It's our flesh nature. It's our carnal nature. It's what we're choosing. It's what we give our affection to. It's what we spend our time on. Our flesh is defeating us. As long as we're feeding at the table of the enemy, he doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't need to send a bunch of demons to bother you. You're already at the table. As long as he can separate you from the kingdom reality and the presence of Jesus, he's got you. You don't have to become a mass murderer. You just sit in the pew and live life the way you want to, and you're going to start coasting into this barrenness, lack of presence, religious system. That's where the American church is going. But we have even a greater opposer than that, and that's God himself. God is actually opposing his church right now because we refuse to humble ourselves before him. The Lord says in his scripture, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? See, we've rejected him as king. We've rejected him as Lord. We've rejected him as our sustainer, as our guider, as our help, as our, you know, provider in every way. He will resist the proud. He opposes the proud. He doesn't tolerate them. He actually opposes them. That's why the the process of transformation, the first thing it, it begins with is humility. So we have to discern between the spirit and the flesh. Everything in our flesh is an enemy to the spirit of God. This is funny. I mean, it sounds so basic, but, you know, Paul talks about this all the time in the epistles. Once we get saved, the expectation from the Lord's perspective is that we stay saved. When we're separated from the world, he expects us to live free from its influence. That's what he, that's what he expects. We're not supposed to return to the yoke of slavery, Paul says. We're supposed to live free. If we don't, we get sucked back into the, the spirit of the age. 
Paul says in Galatians that the flesh lusts or sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you don't do the things that you wish. The carnal mind is, at in, is hostile toward God. It is not subject to God's law, and it can't be. And the carnal mind has no ability whatsoever to understand the things of God. So if we're pursuing things that, that of our carnal nature, our flesh nature, we will lose all capacity to understand the things of God. I think that's so scary. We can open our Bible, and you know what? We don't get anything out of it anymore. We go to worship services, but you know what? We just can't feel the presence of the Lord anymore. Part of that is because we've been indulging our carnal minds, our carnal nature. We're just feeding our appetites on the things of the world, and all of a sudden, boom, we're in church. Like, oh, wow, yeah, spirit. I wonder where that, I wonder where that went. I wonder where my spirit is. Oh, yeah. And there's just not much activity in your spirit because your flesh has just taken over everything. In the 21 days, it, it helps us to, to submit our flesh again to our spirit because that's how it's supposed to be. Our flesh should be subjected to the spirit that dwells on the inside of us. That's how it's supposed to work. And if we live like that, you know what? We're not going to be tempted by all those things in the world. I'm not tempted by the things I used to be tempted by. My spirit man has grown stronger over the last 25 years, you know? But we're in a wrestling match. The death sentence has already been pronounced on our flesh. Its death really does become our death. I mean, it really does. If we pursue things that God has already judged, that the enemy is already using to promote his kingdom, it causes us to die, causes us to wither. Oh, we're good. We're almost done. We'll get a new battery. Okay, so why, why are we talking about the spirit of the age? Because we have to understand the culture in which we live. And we have to ask the Lord to help us honestly assess where we are. What are we giving our time to? What are we spending our money on? Where are the affections of our heart? And how do you know that? You can, I mean, we'd all sit here, oh, no, I love Jesus with all of my heart. Well, okay, so it gets down to real practical things. You're going to do the 21 days. You're going to come one night or five nights. How busy are you? What are you busy doing? I mean, it really comes down to what do you want to do more? Somebody mentioned Monday night football. Or the big game. Or, or whatever it is. I mean, what's always funny is everybody wants to go through the process in January, but then you've got the Super Bowl, so they have to wrestle with, you know, we love our stuff. We, we, we love the things of the world, and I'm not saying they're all evil, but what I'm saying is if it has more of our attention than we give to the Lord, if it has more of the affection of our heart, if our spirit is dulled by it, then we have to run to the Lord in desperation and say, Jesus, show me. Where have I put you? What's the condition of my spirit? What is feeding my flesh? And, and then I think with a, an absolute holy terror, we turn away from those things. I don't want my heart to have an attachment in anything in this world because I know what's going to happen to it. And I don't want to go with it. <laughs> I have chosen. I want to spend eternity ruling and reigning with Jesus. That's what my destiny is. And I don't want to compromise that even now by pursuing the things of the world. 
in the transformation process, this is the war. There's a war going on in your community versus a kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And if we want the kingdom of God to prevail, we have to get out of our captivity first. We can't be hostages and in love with the things of the world and be revolutionaries, you know, ushering in a, a kingdom of light. Does that make sense? And only the Lord can show us those things. But, um, boy, the Lord is looking for revolutionaries right now, people that are willing to just stand up and say, you know what, my hope has been in this, my faith has been in I mean, a couple of years ago, we had faith in our economy. I don't think that's true anymore. We used to have faith in our medical systems, our health care. We don't have faith in that anymore. We used to have faith in our military might. We don't really have much faith in that anymore. I mean, if you haven't noticed, he's shaking things. And it hasn't even really gotten started. So if, you're, if you've got equity in those things, what's going to happen? You're going to be shaken, right? In 9-11, the church was as fearful as the world. The church, people ran into the church. The church grew for three weeks, and then they ran back out. Because they didn't find anything when they, you know, we were as afraid as they were. We didn't know. I mean, we were not prepared. We didn't have answers. We didn't have presence. So the world came running in the time of need and desperation and panic. And they're like, hey, nothing going on here. And they just ran out the back door. We are supposed to be different. And the consecration process, the transformation process helps us get there. Um. Do we need to take a break or should we just go to the next session? You want to take a five-minute break? Let's do that. Let's just take a five-minute break. The final session is about consecration and what's going to happen in the... There's something about just being face-to-face with the Lord where it's not about getting the answer to prayer, where it's just about Jesus, you know? Um, And Denny's church, I got there not too long after their celebration, and I walked in the back of his foyer for a meeting... And my knees buckled with the manifest presence of God in that Nazarene church. I mean, it was like there was a river from God's throne just running through his sanctuary. I mean, it's still amazing. It's amazing. It is not a normal Nazarene church anymore. What they're describing is they got out of their status quo. What got them out? Seeking Jesus. This is about Jesus. This is about his presence and how he is longing to show us how much he loves us. We just don't give him time. You know, we're just too busy. So when we slow down and we spend that time, he really, really um, will bless us in so many ways. Okay, if you have your Bibles, or even if you don't, I want to just make a comment about Second Chronicles chapter 29. Um, and then I want to give you a real challenge. Second Chronicles 29 through 31 is Israel's glorious, most glorious period of time. It's the greatest revival in Israel's history. But what's so intriguing to me is, is the dynamic, because in the very end of chapter 28 describes the death of King Ahaz, and this guy was so evil. He started offering sacrifices to other gods and um, it says they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. He destroyed the house of the Lord. He shut up the doors. He made altars for himself in every corner, in every single city of Judah. He made high places. 
And it says he provoked the Lord to anger. Well, I would think so. You know, this was a king that absolutely turned over his nation to idolatry. But he had a son who must have had a good mama because we know Hezekiah didn't get this from his father. King Hezekiah became king because Ahaz died. King Hezekiah becomes king. What is he, 21 years old, 25 years old? He inherits the mess, right? He inherits a, a, a nation that's been destroyed by idolatry. It's been judged by the Lord. People have been killed. People have been taken captive. The, the house of worship had been shut up and destroyed. You know, it needed all kinds of reform and help. And all of a sudden, this young kid inherits a nation in that much trouble. But here's what Hezekiah understood. This is what we need to understand. If a nation is in crisis, it's because of the internal crisis in the church. If a nation is in that kind of a, a, that level of trouble, we can't fix it externally. We have to look internally. The crisis in the nation is only a reflection of the internal crisis of the church. King Hezekiah knew, he understood this because in the first year of his reign, in the first month, in other words, the first thing that he did, it says he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He saw the trouble. And, you know, he, as, when he became king, it would have been like when we elect a new president. Everybody would have been clamoring, Hezekiah, you, we need social reforms. We need financial reforms. We need to clean this up. We need to defeat these enemies. We need to do this. We need to do that. There would have been the same kind of pressure like when we elect a president. Everybody's vying for their... See, it's my responsibility. Um, Like when we elect a president, you probably notice that. Everybody's promising all kinds of things to appease the people. They're not necessarily uh, promoting things for the the health of the nation. There's a lot of political posturing, isn't there? They've got special interest groups. Hezekiah would have faced that same pressure because of the ruin of Judah. But that young man understood that the crisis in the nation was directly resulting from the house of the Lord being in disrepair. So the first thing he does, his highest priority, is repair the doors of the house of the Lord. Then he calls the Levites. He says, now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Where does Hezekiah start in the reforming of Israel? By cleansing the people, then sending in the consecrated Levites into the temple to carry out the rubbish. My understanding was it took from the temple to the, the river where they carried it. It was about the length of a football field or something. Somebody told me or a couple of football fields. In other words, it wasn't like just dump it out across the street. This took eight days to cleanse the temple. And they went in and they removed everything that had offended God, everything that had defiled God and defiled the temple. They cleansed the rubbish. I believe this is exactly what the Lord is saying to the church today. Consecrate yourselves and then go into the temple and carry out the rubbish. Go into your homes, go into your neighborhoods, go into your congregation, gather it up and bring it to the altar. Carry it out. Cleanse the temple from everything. See, if you defile the temple inside here, it offends the presence of the Lord. 
If you defile your home, it's going to offend the presence of the Lord. Well, that's really counterproductive if you're praying for revival. The first thing we have to do in revival is stop offending the presence of God. Right? We, we, have, we can't keep offending his presence and then pray for revival. But that's what we're doing. That's why we're so confused. That's why we're in so much trouble. <clears throat> so we sent him in. They carried out the rubbish from the holy place. And then he goes on and he, he describes that our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. Listen to this. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord. They've turned their backs on him. This guy had a passion for what he had witnessed all of his life. He had watched his father and the increasing idolatry and the people turning their faces, literally turning their backs on God. And he understood that that is what led to the demise of the nation. We need to understand that. We're never going to solve our problems politically. You're never going to elect the right guy to fix the mess that we're in. Our mess is an internal crisis, not an external crisis. Then Hezekiah goes on. I mean, Hezekiah did, wasn't responsible for any of this, but he's taking responsibility for it. He says, Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem. He's given them up to trouble, desolation, and jeering. Because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our wives and sons and daughters are, are in captivity. So he's saying we, we have endured a lot of trouble because of the condition of God's house. And then he gives them a charge. My sons, or no, he says, now it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord so that his wrath will turn away from us. This is exactly what you hear when you go into a village that's been transformed. It gets in their heart to restore covenant with God. Their passion becomes not, oh, all the things I have to give up. And, you know, they're not whining and complaining. They recognize that's the enemy that's destroying my family and my neighbors and my friends and my nation. And my heart is to recovenant with God and turn from those things, the rubbish, if you will, and renew my covenant relationship with God. Transformation of a village or a community is simply recovenanting again with God. But that requires removing the rubbish, removing the defilement. So then he gives them a charge. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. In other words, let the worship begin in the house of the Lord. Restore the worship. I mean, this goes on and on. I'm not going to go into it. But they, they carried it all out to the brook Kidron. They sanctified on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day, they came, they sanctified the Lord, and they opened it up. They started the burnt offerings, and they replaced the articles. I mean, they just, they basically started a giant, they just restored the temple. Then he went out to the rulers of the city. He started gathering the rulers of the city and says, Come back to the house of the Lord. So he literally, he restored the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to restore the presence. And then he went out to the other cities and said, come back to the house of the Lord. See, once we've restored the holy place of God in our midst, in our congregations, our communities, that will, then we can invite other people to the fire. Once we have a fire, we can share the fire. 
And so this revival swept all across the nation. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, God healed all the people. You know, there were storehouses of, of just prosperity and blessing and social reform. And it was the most glorious period in Israel's history. That's what consecration looks like. Uh, we could look at that in many different places in Scripture. But the idea is we need to become a people that will understand that sin and the things of the world are enemies to God. They're hostile to the things of the Lord. And we have to remove the rubbish from our own lives and consecrate ourselves back to the Lord and then prepare ourselves to partner with him as that spreads to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities. So the, the point of going through the 21 days is not, it's not a fix-all. It's a baby step of a baby step. But it really can help us identify what we're struggling with and then we can be, not only become free from it, but transition then into a lifestyle of ongoing devotion and worship so we don't revert back. This isn't like a bad spiritual diet where you just, you know, you go on the fast, you go, you get off the fast, and you have to go back on another one. You know, somebody called, somebody was telling me, I think it was in Washington, D.C., and they were saying the first of the year is just, they call it their, their, the Christmas diet or something. They fast every year in January, and they said it's just become like our after-Christmas diet, you know. We were naughty during the holidays, so, boy, we're all going to consecrate ourselves in January. But by February and March, what's happened? We've, we just return back to, you know, the things of the world. So this isn't about pausing it. This is about changing our appetites from the things of the world to the things of God. And there's nothing hard about it. There's nothing complicated about it. It takes a heart that's wanting to be obedient to the Lord. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of uh, hints for going through because some of you have already been through and you're probably wondering, well, why should I do this again? Um, and I'm going to tell you why you should do it again. Um, Every time you go through the process, it's going to go deeper. It's going to affect you in different ways. It's going to affect your life in different ways. Um, but it's kind of like your personal devotions. You don't say, oh, I had my devotions this morning with the Lord, so why would I have to do that again? You know, this is a special time set aside to seek the Lord. Um, I think it's a good idea to do like every six months, a couple times a year. A lot of congregations do that um, because the influence of our world is so is is just so strong it pulls us back so easily um so part of your maintenance strategy is just to make sure you haven't reverted back the key to it is abandonment with expectation i can promise you the more you put into it the more you'll get out of it if you just come to one prayer meeting a week don't expect a lot from the lord because you're not giving it much to work with but if you come every night and you meet with your family in your homes, and you're meeting with Jesus every morning, I guarantee you you're going to have all kinds of response from heaven because the Lord is faithful. And if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. So you want to abandon yourself. You want to clear your schedules as much as possible. You want to expect that God's going to do amazing things because he will. Um, another thing to think about is if you've gone through before, not only will the Lord deepen it in you, but I want to encourage you to focus on your families. We call it rebuilding the family altar. Maybe you don't come all five nights, you know, to the corporate prayer meeting. Maybe you come three nights, 
But however you do it, make sure you spend time. If you have kids at home or grown children, send them a prayer guide. Get on the phone and just meet with them and pray together with them. I know lots of people that have done that and had tremendous breakthroughs. So I, I really believe God wants to, to focus on restoring our families. The enemy is working overtime to destroy the families in our nation. And God wants to bring restoration and wholeness and healing. So that's a good focus. You also might want to think about your workplace. If you have any believers, you know, any Christians in your, where you work that you pray together with or might be open, just bring them a prayer guide and just see. I mean, see if the Lord will open a door. You know, this works everywhere. Um, I believe the Lord wants just pockets of people praying all over Orange County, just getting right with God. What would he do if this grassroots fire started just kind of burning everywhere and it wasn't connected to some ministry or, or you know, building? It was just God's people just seeking the Lord. That's really how revival starts. Um, prepare yourselves. Um, you know, there's a number of ways to do this. Um, really consider, well, we've got a lot of info on the website about fasting guidelines, some ways you can fast, um, some things to consider. Um, but just be obedient in your heart. And remember, you're going to go through the process on four different levels. One, you're going to get the prayer guide with the daily devotional. It's just the Word of God. It's from Second Chronicles 7.14. So you're going to get the prayer guide and go through it personally every day with the Lord, just Lord, you know, I think it, day one is a step of humility, you know. So you're going to be meditating along with hundreds of other people on the humility of Jesus and asking God to, you know, to do that in you, to, to conform you into his image. And then maybe over dinner you d- go through it with your spouse or if you have kids at home or you call, call you know, some of your children or something and you just go through the, the same devotional with your family, and just let the Lord speak to you. You might need to repent for something. Say, honey, you know what? Boy, I feel really convicted. I've had an attitude of pride in this area in our relationship. I'm really sorry. You know, you just do business with God, you know. And then in the evenings, you come to the corporate prayer meeting. And that's really dynamic because now you're with the whole family of God. Well, the whole family going through. And now everybody's asking the Lord. Check my heart, Lord. Expose any pride in me. Lead me in a way that produces humility. And, and there will be people that are going to repent for a spirit of pride or you know, lack of humility in one area of their life or something. So you want to go through personally with your family, your spouse, your family, and then you want to go through corporately. And then however you can, for those of you that lead ministries or congregations, incorporate it into your congregation, you know, Get your elders praying into it. Get, you know, your small groups um, involved in it. You know, make it part of, if you don't um, translate this and kind of digest this into the church body itself, it'll just become a program that you went through for three weeks. And this isn't about a program. This is about getting people in front of the face of Jesus until he conforms us into his image and things around us begin to take on his likeness. So he might change your ministry. Um, He might speak to you about some things. He might want to change some things. This is a good time to ask God, hey, what do you think of how we're doing this or how are we doing that? And he might have an opinion, you know. Um, He might want to change something. He might want to add something. But just ask him and just spend that time with the Lord. Um, 
this process of face-to-face wasn't something that I came up with. It was something the Lord spoke to me about very, very clearly. And my understanding of it is just his heart is just jealous for his people. He wants to be with his bride. And he wants to bless us with his presence. He wants us to taste and see and know that he's good. Um, he has so much in store for us. So please don't go through superficially. If You know, you don't have to act like you're Elijah or anything. You know, you don't have to go on a... You know, you don't have to be a spiritual superhero. fact is, I'd encourage you not to focus as much on food as you do on turning off media and the, the, the things of the world. But do it with all of your heart and just, just see what God will do. It's the most amazing journey. How many of you have not gone through yet? Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, so how many of you have gone through? How many of you thought it was life-changing? Yeah, oh, awesome, both hands, praise God. How many of you were surprised by what he did? Like, yeah, yeah, it's so funny. People go in, like, yeah, I know, I fast all, you know, they just think they know, and you're like, oh, no, you have no idea. He's so creative, and um, I think it's so fun. It's like you just jump off a cliff into the unknown. You, do, you really do, you jump off a cliff. That's why it's abandoning yourself, but with great expectation that he'll meet you, because he is faithful and he will. So be thinking about other people, uh, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, you know, just there's a promo video on the website. There's all the lots and lots of testimonies. However you can stir their hunger to get in, just get into the face of God for a couple weeks. Um, that sounds really good. So in terms of logistics, I think I'll just turn it over to Mr. Cobble. Thank the Lord for influencers and their hunger for God. <laughs>